Hi, folks. Welcome back to another episode of Building Your Permaculture Property. And for today's episode, I'm chatting with my good friend, Curtis Stone. And we're going to be talking about uh, his book, The Urban Farmer. We're going to be talking about uh, some of Curtis's history about uh, kind of why he got into uh, farming uh, and, and also how, uh, how Curtis is kind of, um, he's, he's done a really great job of criticizing some of the things that permaculture got wrong. And, uh, and, and also, you know, now that he's kind of moving on to his, his new property, uh, uh, and, and myself and Rob have been out to his property. We've, um, uh, I think, hopefully, uh, Curtis is, is back on the permaculture bandwagon. But, um, but so that's kind of the, the schedule for, for, uh, for the chat. Uh, but before we jump into that, what, what I'd love to do is start out with uh, a bit of your, your story and your background, Curtis, because uh, as we, I was saying before we kind of started the recording here is, is you're like the Jordan Peterson of, of, of farming uh, because <laughs> the, the people that love you, love you, but the people that hate you, hate you. <laughs> oh, man. And, yeah. and the, the thing that I don't get is I, I've spent a lot of time with you. I've, I've had you in my home and, and you, you've had me in your home. And, and I, I just, I don't see what the, um, like, <laughs> I don't get it. And so, but like after reading your book and like hearing your story about how you, you kind of, you got into this where you're, you were really interested in like right livelihood and, you know, you spent a lot of time in, in kind of the, the activist, you know, world. And now you're still, you're doing all that stuff, but you're not doing it in like the kind of contemporary, you know, you know, F the system, you know, let's just, you know, fight and make noise. You're doing it in a different way. And yet, the the kind of typical activist types don't they don't like that and so anyways if if with that i'll kind of turn it over to you if you could just mm -hmm. kind of um tell us the story arc of of what got you into this stuff yeah well thanks for having me uh but i mean yeah i'm a white male right so i'm scum of the earth <laughs> uh to, to a lot of um the social justice warrior activists and, and that's you know I, i've had sort of a um don't want to say a breakup or a falling out, but I've had a sort of reevaluation of my relationship to the urban farming scene mm -hmm. because there's, uh, and it's not so much, it's kind of like what some of these, I don't know, some of these maybe modern conservative thinkers say things like, it's quite a bit of a cliche now, but it's like, I never left the left, the left left me. <laughs> and I kind of feel exactly. the same with 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 urban farming in a way as I never really left urban farming um I'm still I still have an urban home um but but the urban farming movement kind of got crazy and it, and it, it turned into a spinster with of a nutso scene um that has just been completely um, wrapped up in the social justice, you know, radical leftism, activism, which, which that stuff has co-opted a lot of movements, right? And it's happened in urban farming. You know, I go to these urban farming conferences in places like Boston and first see my first gender neutral bathroom, you know, um, you know, and a lot of sort of the virtue signaling and it just, you know, I, I just, I just can't shut up about this stuff. Like, I just can't, I'm not the kind of guy that just goes along to get along. I kind of like if things don't jive with me, I call it out. And I did that 
not so early in my career, but maybe kind of later into my career as, you know, being a public speaking for many years started and, and I just, you know, I'm, I'm gone. I, I've been, I've been excommunicated. Um, so, but I could care less because for me, um, like a lot of people in, in, in my circles, we're creators and we're always on to the next thing. So, I mean, uh, and even right now, I'm telling people that farming in the city might not be the best idea because being in the city might not be the best idea with where we are. But that that could be a whole other conversation. So getting, did you want me to kind of talk a little bit about how I got into this or? Yeah, but before that, like one of the things I wanted to point out is is like, and, and this really came through in your book and, and also just from, from spending time with you personally, is like you are a very um, heart-centered, caring um, person but you, you have very, you know, strict values. And, and, and when, like you said, you speak your mind um, and, uh, you know, some of these issues, like, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, the gender neutral stuff, well, some people will say, well, like that, that's just like, it's such a hot, you know, button issue that most people would just kind of roll over and, and, and kind of go with that versus I think both you and I have spent a lot of time researching in kind of where that slippery slope goes and just the contradictions that are wrapped up in it. And also, I mean, now, like, like, we don't have to talk about, about the, you know, where this goes from a theoretical standpoint, we know where it goes, like, mm -hmm. people have been killed this year, because of these very radical belief systems that that you have been, I think, um, I was deep into. Yeah. And, and well, you, you, you were deep into but but you spent the last, you know, I don't know how long, many years, calling this stuff out yes, because you yeah. could kind of see where it was going, but people just saw you as this kind of insensitive a-hole mm -hmm. who, but, the, and, and that, that was just like reading your book. And cause I didn't, I didn't know that you were, you kind of grew up in like the punk scene and, and we're like, we're <laughs> like it's like, I didn't know that, but like yeah. that, that piece with kind of just spending time with you. And like, I just figured that you kind of came out of the womb, this, <laughs> you know, total like <laughs> uh, capitalist win-win kind of a guy, but it's like, no, yeah. he, he, like you, you actually saw from your personal experience that that, that style of activism doesn't work. And so you started a new yeah. style of activism. And so anyways, that yeah. just, so, yeah. So, I mean, you know, in, in many ways, I still accredit punk rock to actually saving my life. Um, I was a very uh, misdirected, misguided young man, having kind of lost my dad in the presence of our family. My dad's still alive and, and we have a relationship. But but when I, you know, my parents split when I was seven. And uh, it took me until I was probably in my mid 30s to reconcile what actually happened, mm. what transpired when my parents split. And it's not easy for any young person as a young man as the, as the older uh, sibling I all of a sudden lost a lot of direction and or a lot of orientation to what was right and what was wrong mm. and uh, I didn't have that father figure so present now my dad did his best you know and I, and I don't I don't hold any ill will to my family whatsoever it is what it is and and here I am but uh but it uh, you know I got mixed up in a lot of things when I was when I was really uh when I was 14 I got really mixed up with the wrong crowd and uh, being with my, my mom, a single mom who was working a lot of jobs to support us. And my brother and I had babysitters and we were often just unattended and we got in trouble. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also, I grew up on in an area of Kelowna where there was a lot of, it's not like Kelowna is a ghetto. It's, it's, it's always been an upper middle-class town, but it would be say the sort of the lower class of, of the town 
that, that I grew up in and spent my formative years. And I got mixed up with the wrong crowd. And I had one friend, I had multiple friends like this, but one friend in particular, his sister was a total wreck. And I think she's dead now, died of a drug overdose in East, East Ace Hastings, Vancouver. Um, her boyfriend was a, was a really, really nasty drug dealer. And uh, we got into bad stuff early on. We were doing all kinds of hard drugs early on. And uh, it was, it was, it was tough. And I, uh, I, I really went, was going on a wrong path until I was about 17 years old. I really got into punk rock music. So at first I really got into like the Sex Pistols, which is just kind of trashy, you know, punk rock. There, there wasn't really a lot of message to it on the surface, though there actually is. You go back and listen to those records. There, there, there's, some, there's some deep thought in those albums. But, but uh, I started listening to bands like the Dead Kennedys and Crass and these sort of anarchist punk rock bands that had something to say and turned turned me on to Noam Chomsky which I still agree with much of what he says but not all of what he says Um, and getting into that music then I got into this hardcore straight edge music uh, and that and I and I really got into that scene and it was actually exactly what I needed at the time and it saved me from getting into the drug scene further and uh, when I was about yeah, when I was like 17, 18, I really got serious into this, 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 this punk rock stuff and, and this hardcore bands. And I completely splintered off from all the friends that I'd spent my formative years with. They all continue to do drugs. And 10 of them, I'm not kidding you, 10 of them are on the streets now in Kelowna. I see them all the time. Wow. These guys are absolutely washed up drug addicts. They've abandoned their families. Many of them have kids that they've deserted their kids and total, total disaster. Some of them, some of them are actually dead recently too but you know, bad stuff. Uh, but, but it was at that time where I split off all of my friends went one way and I went another way. And, uh, it was getting into that stuff back then just kind of got me into the mindset of thinking for yourself and questioning everything. And so even though I don't agree with a lot of the things that, that I was into with punk rock, you know, I got into this sort of, uh, black block anarchist, which is, which is what Antifa is today. In, in many ways, yeah. I got into a lot of that stuff. Um, I left that behind, but, but I kept the sort of attitude in that I'm not, do, you're not, I'm not doing what you're telling me to, you know, I'm not taking everything you're saying to me at face value. <laughs> you know, I still have that punk rock sort yeah. of attitude and I don't take shit. And, um, and I, I, I really owe that. I owe a lot of my success and uh, especially with being, a family guy and being available for my family. And here I am today. I owe it to punk rock when, when I got into it back then. Wow. And so what was the turning point from like the punk rock scene to you growing vegetables? <laughs> well, that was a long, that was a long transition because I mean, that was, you know, that started when I was like 15, 16. And then, you know, here I am 41. Now I got into farming what was it? My first year of farming was when I was, uh, well, it's been over 10 years. So 12, when I was 20, 29. Um, and then, but I was still kind of a lefty, but anyways, in Montreal, I was still pursuing music. I, I kind of long left punk rock behind me. It was really into jazz and contemporary jazz and stuff like that. Went to, to school to study music composition. I, I had a, my ambitions were to be a film composer doing scoring for film. Oh, wow. uh, that was my passion, but it was also playing in these progressive sort of jazz rock fusion bands type things. And I played a play a variety of instruments, 
I did that for many years, but I, but you know, all along I'd always been paying attention to geopolitics. Like even the, the eight years, eight years I lived in Montreal. Yeah. Eight years that I lived in Montreal, I'd still like, I was paying attention, you know, when nine 11 happened, I was, I was pretty on board with that was a, um, a, a false flag event. And, you know, not, not right away, of course, cause I was still young when that happened. I was like, 20 but you know when i was was like 25 or something like that i was kind of waking up to truth or things and um and then i you know i been i kind of got into i don't know how i got into permaculture i mean i it was like i was still in montreal uh, and i just always wanted the i i always you know as far back as i can remember i've always romanticized the idea with living in harmony with nature i've always romanticized that yeah. Um, I got into environmentalism early on and, and probably the wrong environmentalism really looking back at it, but the sort of the radical environmentalism. And, uh, but I always had that desire and, you know, uh, one year it was like, it was even before YouTube was a thing, it was Google video I was using and I was using other video search platforms. And I really found a lot, I found these old Bill Mollison videos yeah. and, um, the lazy gardener and stuff we're going to talk about, but, but um, Bill Mollison and Michael Reynolds, the Earthship guy. Oh, and yeah. I just was obsessed with this idea of just living on the land. Cause I've always hated the state, the system telling you what you should or should not do. And I'm just like, I've always had this feeling like, why can't we just be people and just live on the land? Why do we need to have these governments and these corporations? Like, why can't we just do that? And, and that's when I, that, that started my journey. And that, that was in the kind of mid two thousands. And, uh, and I just, I read as many books as I could. I was ordering books all the time. I was going to the library in Montreal, just reading. Uh, there was le- a lot less information online back then too. And so, but I, you know, I found these old Bill Mollison videos and I just was always looking for stuff. And, and it was in 2008, it was, um, right early 2008 Montreal had this crazy rainstorm freezing rainstorm that knocked out a lot of the power lines and stuff like that and you know Montreal is a is a very nebulous city it's 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 it looks like a third world country in some parts it's just a it's a shithole it's just the roads are the roads are collapsing the bridges are duct taped together it's just it's a piece of garbage it's and it's just there's so much story to that and how corrupt the city is and how socialism's failed there and whatever but when that freezing rainstorm happened and i saw the infrastructure just just the inability to maintain normalcy you know the wake-up call was on day three this this freezing rainstorm happened and it was it was pretty gnarly like it was ice everywhere right and that takes a long time to clean up but there was shortages in the stores because the food system as you and i both know is so centralized that like when the trucks start stop moving there's no food and so i started it's not like it was venezuela you go in there empty shelves it wasn't like that but it was like Huh, that product's not there. That product, like, it's just kind of weird. It just kind of switched me on. And I'm just like, man, uh, why is this? Well, it's obvious. It's because the trucks can't get into the damn city. And it was at that very moment, this would have been in, this would, I went, it was March or January, February. I just realized like, man, our system is fragile. And this is at the exact same time that the great, the recession was starting under Obama, the bailout of the banks and all that stuff. And I was really waking up to the corruption of the system and also just the, the fragility of the system. And then that's when I realized 
I got to get out of this city because if the shit were to really hit the fan here, this is the last place on earth I would want to be. Whether uh, compactness, people don't have any practical skills. It would be it would be a gong show and a collapse. And so that's when I really started to say, you know what? I'm tired of this music thing. Anyways, I'd been going at it for a long time. Um, And uh, there was just some things in the band that I was playing in one of the members left and he was he was a key member and it was like yeah this is pointless and so i'm just like you know what i'm gonna learn i'm gonna teach myself how to farm and at that time i was also obsessed with the mayan calendar prophecy <laughs> uh you i don't know if you went down that rabbit hole but uh i was like 2012 man like this is it i got I, and so at that time i wrote out this five-year plan i still have it it's a text document i have on my computer and i um I wrote out what I was going to do each year to prepare for basically 2012. It's like, you know, this is it. And you got to, you got to be, you got to learn how to live on the land. And so I basically was like, okay, my goal at that time was I'm going to go and buy land, uh, which was, you know, kind of a waste of time to even think about that. But I didn't know that then I thought in order to live on the land, you have to buy the land, which you don't. And that's what I've proven in my book. But, but, um, I made up this plan. And so I'm going to go tree planting, which I, 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 I was a veteran of tree planting that, 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 that time I could make good money. I could go out and make 500, 700 bucks a day. And so I'd go and I'd work my ass off and I'd save money. And my plan was just for five years, five more years, save a bunch of money and then take like a PDC and then do all this stuff in between to educate myself on how to live on the land, how to farm, how to do whatever. Uh, and I worked towards that goal, but then I got into this ermine farming thing and it just took me in a whole other direction. Hmm. That's crazy. I mean, what a, <laughs> what an arc from, and, and I mean, just like, let's, let's finish the arc with like, okay, so you, you, you did the urban farming thing for, uh, was that almost, almost 10, 10 years with that? And, yeah. and, 10 years. and so now, now, now what are you doing? Let's, well, I mean, okay, so I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll go, I'll pick up a little bit where I left off to bring us up to where we are. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess it would have been, I wrote that five year plan in 2008. I started Green City Acres spring of 2010, but I did do like four months of prep to get my farm ready for. So I started actually in the fall, of, I didn't start production, but I started building my first urban farm in the fall of 2009 and uh, you know, went for it then. And then, and then um, started my first year. It worked. Like I hacked it out. I was working like a dog. Cause I, I, at the time I did everything by bike for the first three years of my business. I did everything by bicycles. So I had these custom built trailers and all this and I worked like an animal. Uh, but I felt incredible. And, you know, I didn't have kids at the time. I wasn't in a serious relationship. So I was a free bird to just go for it, you know, and I'm glad I did. Um, and, you know, the business in those 10 years had many different kind of ebbs and flows. You know, there was the first call it three years were just absolute growth with the urban farming model I had, which, which wasn't what was written about in my book. That was later. That was like on the kind of the seventh year or sixth year of me in business where I really kind of dialed it in. But these first three years, it was like kind of just hacking it out. But I, I was, I was doubling my money every year from there. And so yeah. it was, it was profitable as far as like, you know, I can make enough money to get through winter and then do it again the next winter. I wasn't making bank on it, but I was doing okay. Yeah. Um, 
And then my fourth year, I went into a partnership and like quadrupled the size of my farm. We had eight people working for us at, you know, different times of the season that didn't work out. The partnership didn't work out, but I saw the light on how the business should work. And then after that, I basically, cause I grew it to two and a half acres and that's a lot in market gardening. Yeah. And so at that point I scaled it all back and I had, I had a really epic year that was in, it was in 2014. I had like everything fall apart. I was in a relationship that fell apart. Um, I lost my business more or less. Um, I had a, I had a CSA with 80 people signed up, had to refund all of them. Wow. Nightmare. Um, oh, man. And, uh, and then I had to restructure everything and then just focus on what I knew would work. And it was basically out of desperation where I said, I got to cut out the shit because I need to make money. Cause I just like screwed a bunch of stuff up and I got to build back. And so that was the, basically that business model there was what was written about in my book. And so I repeated that up until, you know, the next, next number of years, I haven't commercially farmed in a couple of years now, but, uh, but yeah, I did that and then it worked great. And then I basically, you know, I closed the farm while I, I kind of quit while I was ahead in that uh, the last three years of running the urban farm um, were really, really solid. I had this guy named Mark working for me and he was great. He was basically like my right-hand man. And uh, without him, I wouldn't have been able to write my book even because I was writing my book when I was in production. Well, I actually started my book in the fall, but I, the previous year I had worked on the outline throughout the summer, gave that to the publisher, New Society, and then basically worked on it all winter. And then I basically finished, uh, it took me about six months to finish the, the first draft that went to my editor. And then I spent the entire growing season in 2016 editing while I was farming. And it was, uh, it was hell. Like I was working. Yeah hundred hour weeks. Like I was literally on the farm all day telling my, I, I had a, I had a small crew then I had Mark and then I, I had a couple different guys that would rotate with. And so there was always at least three guys on the farm. And so I was delegating. I was still doing all the customer service. I was, I wasn't um, full-time in the field, but I was still running the business and operating it and, and fully there problem solving and all that. Um, and uh, that was just insane. But, you know, once I had the book written uh, for the next couple of years, it worked really well with Mark because um, he, uh, it allowed me, I was getting a lot of notoriety for the book. I was, you know, a lot of people were requesting me to go and speak. And I was just, I was on a, an airplane, like at least twice a month in the U S and just at conferences and all this stuff. And uh, it was, it was, Mark was instrumental at that time, because if, if I didn't have him holding down the fort, it wouldn't have worked. And, and at that time, I still was making the majority of my living from the farm. Yeah. Like, yeah, public speaking, all that and book, book revenue didn't really come in for another year and a half because it takes a while for those kind of royalties to come back and all that. But uh, so I was still primarily making a living as a farmer, uh, but then doing all this other stuff and it was crazy. But then um, basically where, where I decided to close Green City Acres uh, and actually I still technically have Green City Acres technically as a business because I use it to run my new farm, which isn't commercial, but I have the entity and I have the bank account and all that, but I, I just don't have customers. Per se. I got a couple, but it's nothing serious. But, um, you know, basically I was on a speaking tour in Europe and, uh, and I remember I was still like, I would, I would be, I was in 
like in Sweden, getting text messages from chefs and, and, and then delegating stuff back to Mark. It was just such a pain in the ass. Yeah. And basically, I think, he, you know, he kind of just got a little burnt out on it. I kind of gave him an opportunity to take over the business. And I was pretty much willing to just give it to him just yeah. so that he could take it over. And my, my, my ambition at the time was, you take the business, man. It's all you. I just want to come and make videos on the farm and do my workshops on the farm. Cause at the time I was doing a lot of workshops, like I was bringing people to Kelowna and teaching these fantastic workshops on the farm. They were a lot of fun. And, you know, we do like 20 people, but it was really intimate and it was, it was a great experience. And um, I wanted to kind of keep doing that, but he just kind of buckled under pressure really. And he, I think he just burnt out and he, and he, and he wanted to do something else. And so I remember being in Sweden he kind of sent me some messages that were kind of disconcerting. And I was like, Oh my God, like, uh, am I going to come back and it's going to be a gong show? And I did. And it was a gong show. Uh, <laughs> he screwed up, you know, and, and I don't no hard feelings on him whatsoever. I'm, I'm happy where I am. And so, but uh, you know, he screwed up all the fall plantings. And when you do that, like, like late summer is so important on a market farm, if you're going to run it year round. And we did for the last three years of the business, we ran the farm year round. So we had, Overwinter crops all winter, spinach, carrots, kale, uh, red Russian kale. We could do some lettuce. And then we had our big Paso Solar greenhouse, which you've been in, that yeah. we were cranking out 400 flats of microgreens a week. So this is you know, a lot of winter production. Uh, and a lot of it still came from the field, but he screwed up all the field production. And so I came back and I was just like, man, I don't have time to come in and fix this. Because at this time, I was already, I started a new company with Diego Fooder, Modern Grower a tools company, which was taking a lot of time for me because we were doing a lot of research and development. I was working with engineers and designing tools and shit. And I'm doing public speaking. I'm still doing consulting. I'm, you know, still making YouTube videos. And so, you know, when, when that happened, I was like, man, okay, it's time to shut her down. And, you know, and, and there was also a thing happening in the, in the local food scene too, which was weighing on me is that the, 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 the uh, what's it called gap certification was now going to be brought into all of our grocery stores yeah. and grocery stores. Like I really made my money in farming with restaurants, but later on we really cornered a market in selling to franchise to a couple different franchise grocery stores. And we were selling to these five customers, which became 80% of our business. And so we stopped doing farmer's markets two years before we closed three years before we closed. And um, maybe just two. But, 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 you know, the grocery stores really became a thing and it was awesome. And it was a real gravy train because there was no competition. We, we tapped into a niche. We were selling these guys microgreens and varieties of microgreens all winter and they were buying so much salad mix. And so we were able to basically strip my farm down right into, it was, um, it was 50% salad greens. So like, you know, uh, spinach, arugula, lettuce mix, and uh, red Russian kale. So 50% was salad mixes, 25% was baby root vegetables, like uh, baby carrots, radishes, and baby beets. And then the other 25% was microgreens. And the 25% of microgreens could carry us through the winter. And so it, it hunkering down on the, that crop selection made our farm very profitable. You know, it was two guys running it. Uh, and we had, we'd have a part-time guy in the, in the summer. Uh, so call it, you know, well, really, it was call it two, maybe actually one and a half guys, if you look at it year round, um, over 100 grand in sales on a market farm, which had very little expenses, which is, you know, pretty good as far as market farming is concerned. Yeah. And, um, and so basically, when I came back, I was like, I can't fix this. And so it was a good time to shut her down because of all this gap certification stuff that was going to come down with the grocery stores. 
And I was like, oh, I don't want to deal with that because I got to get these inspectors here, do all this gap stuff. And I was like, uh, I don't have time because I've already taken on too many things. And I and the failure that I made is I hedged my my bets too much on one guy. Yeah. And and that would be a big lesson that that I learned and that I would share with people now is you know if you if, if you're looking at succession for your operation, you have to have multiple successors. Yeah. You can't just put it all on one guy because the pressure sometimes knocks them out, and that's what happened there. And so basically at that point, that would have been in, uh, what was that? 2019, we shut it down. I was in Europe. I lose track of the years, but um, basically decided just to close the farm commercially. And then at that point, I was doing a lot of public speaking and basically traveling to make content. At that point too, I was making a good living from my book royalties and, and, and public speaking and consulting that I was like, okay, I can at least just make like, I, even just if, if it was any one of those things, I could do it and make a living at it. And then I was like, but I'm ambitious. So I like to do more. And, and uh, so I really started to focus on content creation and then that became uh, traveling to make content. So I was in New Zealand and in Australia also, you know, stacking in, I'd go, I'd go to a country or a place and I would do a workshop and then that would be kind of what paid for the trip. And I'd make, I'd make some money from that. And then I would always spend like a week traveling around a place to go and make videos. And so that allowed my YouTube channel to grow because I was, you know, I basically spent two years posting almost every day on YouTube mm -hmm. and that really paid it. That really paid off though. I don't think you can do that now and get the same results with, with what's happened with YouTube, but, but it did at the time. And so, you know, that kind of gets us up to where we are. And then in, uh, in the fall of 2019, I met a couple entrepreneurs uh, that are good friends of mine now and business partners, actually. I met them at a kind of a men's get together, a bunch of fairly high performance entrepreneurs. And uh, these guys gave me the idea. They're like, dude, you need to make a membership website and uh, you need to do, you do that because YouTube is not sustainable because they, they can just cut you off or whatever. And so I just took that idea and ran with it and did it. And then I launched from the field.tv um, in January of uh, 2020. And so we're almost two years of it now and that's become my main focus. And so it's interviewing people like you and uh, having guys like you and Rob and uh, Stephen Cornett making content for From the Field. So fromthefield.tv is basically a curated content platform where to start, it's been mostly me because I bootstrapped it and I was traveling to visit experts. And I spent the first year traveling through 20 something us states just interviewing farmers and finding the best best people i could talk to in market gardening regenerative ag holistic land management whatever microgreens high-tech farming just looking at agricultural solutions and then documenting their stories on the on the, the platform and and so that's become my main my main focus and that's kind of where we're at today wow i mean <laughs> I'm, I'm sure i'm sure that like that story arc seems overwhelming for most people who are who are hearing it but the couple of things that I want to pull out is just like so you started with like almost zero farming experience right none yeah at zero and yeah. and and that was you said you, you said you kind of started in it was in 2008 is, is when you kind of wrote your goal yes and by the end of 2009 you were you were starting your farm business yeah and then you kind of did that for 10 years and I and then, you know, and then that kind of, you know, turned into, 
you know, all these other interests and, and, you know, you, I, I'm sure your kind of background as a, cause you used to be a, a street performer as well, right? Not a street performer, but just like a, you know, a, a, a gigging musician. You okay. Know? Yeah. 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 Touring gigging musician. Yeah. And, and like you, you can really, you can really see that come through like in, in your, you know, your workshops and your, the content that you create, it's, 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 it's art. Like it's, it's really, it's really engaging. It's beautiful. And, and um, you know, the, like, I just, Kind of, kind of coming back to your book, the two of the things that that really stood out to me in um, in your book was you had this quote: "It's it's good to have an ethical stance on things, but if your ideology makes you go broke, nobody wins." Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and and like so, like I really the like all, with within all that kind of story arc there is like you, you are and, and the other piece that stood out for me was your work life balance like this, this really strong theme throughout the whole book was you talked about how, you know, how profitable your business was and, and how enjoyable it was, but how, you also talked about how much time it took. And, and this is something that I think is really um, not talked about a lot within, you know, the, the kind of, you know, permaculture or regenerative agriculture movement is, is like how, how it just, it destroys you and you get mm -hmm. kind of burnout um, yeah. And so I just, yeah, can you, can you talk a bit about like the, that, how you kind of bridged your, that, that ethical and, and, and profitable gap, and then also the, the work-life balance piece in there as well? Yeah. So, I mean, the ethics have always been a part of me, really. And it was that punk rock thing, right? And um, I, uh, you know, be, before I started my farm, like when I left Montreal, the first thing I actually did, it wasn't, I didn't start the farm right away. So I left Montreal in March of 2008. And I, I, I took, I bought out my band's van. I brought, I gave away most of my stuff. And then I, I kept all my musical instruments, which I still have today. And I moved back here and I went on a bike tour down the West coast. And I did, I was woofing doing yeah. the, the willing workers on organic farm. So I, I visited, uh, a dozen places in um, Washington, Oregon, and California, and I rode my bike the whole way. And so, I I learned, I saw a lot of the permaculture scene, if you will, at least from that perspective. Um, certainly not a high level perspective, but 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 from the perspective of young people who are really keen about sustainability and regenerative agriculture and, and want to do something to change the world. And yeah. and it was a really good experience. But but I saw a lot of like people just going broke trying to do these ideas that are sometimes just ridiculous like uh some of the places i visited were just you know the herb spirals a lot of these kind of <laughs> the keyhole gardens like some oh, some of these like these permaculture cliches yeah. you see and you're just like why what a waste of time like what a stupid like what a dumb idea i mean it was just a lot of that and so getting into urban farming in those formative years, I had a lot of people come at me because there's so few people in this space that actually like, just, it's just, not just in the space. There's so few people in the world yeah. that actually just stand up and fucking do something, yeah. you know? And so I had a, and, and I have a lot of leadership characteristics that I, I learned. I didn't, I didn't, uh, didn't have this stuff innately. I learned this shit, but I had a lot of people come at me and, and just like, I said yes to every interview and I just inundated with people and I just got really entrenched in the permaculture sort of local food and urban farming scene in BC. I was going to Vancouver to go to like, just, just to, just to attend, I would go to like 
these urban farming conferences just to network and meet people and, and talk to people of like, of like mind and just connect, you know, cause I'm such a social guy. And back then, no, no relationship, no children, you know, free to do all that stuff. Um, and I just saw so many people just like, especially in the urban farming scene, I think it's worse in the urban farming scene than anywhere else. It's just honestly, like, I just say it because you know I, whatever it, it it doesn't sound nice, but it is what it is. Just like pathetic individuals who are just weak <laughs> individuals, and and they're just like they they have been spoon fed a diet of socialism and social justice and self hate yeah. for their entire lives, at least their high school and university lives, and it's just full of people who are just pathetic that just complain about everything, but don't fucking do anything. And like, they go to these conferences, the urban farming conferences, and they even call themselves urban farmers. And some of these people actually had businesses, but their businesses completely suck. Like, you know, especially like the Vancouver urban farming scene was an absolute joke. Like here I am, this guy from small town Kelowna going to big city Vancouver. And I'm the only urban farmer at this, maybe not the only, but like one of three, I, I remember this first urban farming gathering I went to, which had, like about a hundred people at it. And it was just like a gathering. It was really cool though. It was like this restaurant and it was all these people together. And I met some people there that were sort of some of the formative people in the Vancouver urban farming scene. But here I am, this small town guy coming. And actually Will Allen was at one of these events because I really loved Will Allen. Yeah. And uh, he's, he's a famous urban farmer. And, uh, and I'm here and I'm like the small town guy. And I just remember having this realization. I'm like, you know, I'm not trying to be egotistical, but I'm the, I swear I'm the only fucking guy here who has this shit together. Like I'm the only guy here who's running a profitable business. This whole get together was just everybody with a sob story about how they suck at urban farming. And, and it was like, it was like, it was so obvious. Yeah. It's because all of them are driven by social justice. None, yeah. none of them were actually driven to just run a business and make money. And, and, you know, justice i'm all for justice i'm all for doing good social justice is another conversation but but you know it was like all these people just with their sob stories and it was all like these young agrarians events and stuff right where it's just like you know what are your biggest what are your biggest what are your biggest challenges right now it's like always starting conversations with that frame which is just like always coming from a place of being pathetic it's just like get up and do it you know and i just i just i just felt frustrated and so when i wrote that bit in my book I was kind of referencing a lot of that, you know, and it's still to this day. I mean, I stopped doing these conferences um, when I started from the field, actually, I was just burnt out. I was on a flight all the time going through the TSA in the U S the pain. And I, you know, up until even just a couple of years ago, I'm going to these conferences in the United States still. And it's these same pathetic people getting into urban farming who just can't do it because it's ironic. I got, a, I got, uh, I won't say his name, but I got an email from a guy today who's one of the biggest known urban farmers in the U S and he says to me, he's like, dude, how do you get staff? Like, how do you find, I'm like, dude, it's because this urban farming scene is polluted with these social justice warriors. And so our labor pool sucks. And, and often that has to do with like city and rural, like rural people generally like work hard because they're been working since they were kids like you and then people in the city are all like spoon-fed these all this bs leftist stuff and so the labor pool sucks and so all these urban farmers they don't really succeed because they're just focused on social justice and it's like these urban farmers in vancouver it's like they just want to do it because like urban farming is going to change the world you know and i and i i used to believe that um but they 
but they they would have like their farm would be they're really interested in in the, the big big thing is like we need to serve underserved communities yeah so we need to go and because in it's the whole food justice movement like everybody has a right to healthy food it's like okay maybe i think everybody should have access to food a right though eh, i don't know but anyways these people would go and set up these farmers market stands in like the shithole downtown east side and wonder why nobody bought their stuff it's because nobody cares and then and then the people started to realize it. i think maybe i'd like to think i had something to do with influencing it and people in vancouver but it's like you guys got to make money unless you make money nobody wins and then that's where that other part in the business the, the book came from is just like unless you actually make a profit and can uh, live another day or support another season, then your message is useless anyways. So you might as well focus on your business being profitable and then all the other stuff you can do when you first make the money and pay the bills. Yeah. Well, and that's the, um, like, I'm sad to say that I, I was polluted with that same kind of ideology of, you know, self-hatred and waking up every morning feeling guilty for being alive and, you know, just trying to do less bad. And and and, and I got to the same, or I, I saw where that was going, where it's like, well, it's like, I either kill myself or, you know, I become, you know, the next kind of Mao or, you know, Pol Pot to try to make the world conform to, you know, these crazy ideas in my head. And yeah. I was like, or, or what if it's me? You know, it's like, what if, what if there's something that I'm doing wrong? And, and this is what I love about the story that you've kind of told. And I'm sure people are like, why did you talk about gardening? It's like, gardening is easy. It's the yeah. easiest thing in the world. Yeah. But if you don't have the stuff in your head sorted out, yeah. you, you'll, you will fail. And, and so I, I love your story, but like how, you know, you had to refund 80 customers. You started with, with, you know, no money, no experience. And, and like you, you, you weren't born with, quote unquote white male privilege like you were you know you, and and so like th this is like a classic example and i'm so glad we've had this conversation of like of of the um, like what, what what's possible when when you do kind of take responsibility and and yeah you can work hard but like you've also been you've had you know great rewards for it but you also are probably one of the you know i've i've seen your family and your home it's like it's your it's super well put together I know how hard you work, but like you've got that work-life balance and you're doing all this ethical stuff. And like, you're, you're super um, just, you know, in the, the, you know, business relationships that we've had, like you're super fair. Like it's, I just, I, I don't get the, the disconnect where it's like, no, no, no. Like we, we just need to, to, you know, make food accessible for everyone. It's like, well, like is, is the reason people don't have enough money to buy food like, is that, is that the fault of the farmers or is it the fault of, you know, this geopolitics stuff that's been happening for a hundred years or, or longer? It's like, like just not willing to, to think about all these other things. And yeah, it's, it's, it's an, it's an insolvable problem. And I've seen so many, they're, they're well-intentioned people and they, they have those ethics. But like you said, it's like their ideologies are making them go broke. And yep. this is the scary thing is they, they, they don't, they refuse to, um, this is kind of the irony is like they have self-hatred, but they don't take responsibility. It's like, and, and oh, so they, they, what are you going to do? Give all your stuff away to people of color? Like, is that, is that the plan? Like, well, but it, it becomes this, it, it becomes this vicious, you know, victim hierarchy where people are just kind of fighting to figure out who's kind of on the bottom because 
that way. Well, yeah, but you you know what it is too in our scene, uh, in the in the you know alternative green agriculture scene is that these nonprofit these nonprofits are actually um, so I've worked a lot with nonprofits. It's actually been a large chunk of the consulting work I've done has been for boards and and, and whatever advisory boards and stuff and. Um, also, there's a lot of these groups, these advocacy groups, uh, for lack of a better word, within agriculture that these people in nonprofits, there's always like one or two kind of key people in a nonprofit. And in my opinion, a lot of them are driven by profit. They just wouldn't call it. They're driven by a desire to create a job for themselves. And they're willing to go around and get money from trust funds and, and whatever foundations and all that. And they do that to put these organizations together. But in order for them to stay relevant in their said cause, they have to have a boogeyman, right? Without a boogeyman, there is no cause. That's why like this social justice thing just never goes away. It's because it's, there's all these busybodies now that are just bureaucrats and and sort of like administrative people and in, in HR departments of corporations and, and in, in universities that they've just taken over they're like the deep state yeah. they've just taken over the damn thing and they it just serves their own interest and so it, it's the same thing with 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 all these non these stupid nonprofits mm-hmm. and I don't even care anymore I don't even care if I offend these people anymore because I'm so done with it all but they just they they just fuel their 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 sort of patheticness fuels itself because the person who's the sort of matriarch of of the organization needs to keep perpetuating this vision that farmers are all these victims and they're just a bunch of sad sacks who just need help and then so then it just it just perpetuates itself because they go get funding then they they push the message more and then more people buy in and it's the same circle jerk and it's 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 a it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and and so versus like the alternative things like the stuff that you and i are saying right now some people oh that's harsh it's like well, no, it's it's accurate, and and we're we're not saying this because we want to put people down. We're saying it because we, we want to, people to to. I want people to come up. To it's better. not because I don't want I don't want to people put people down. That's why I'm not naming names. No, uh, I'm not here to talk shit. I want the best for everybody. Yeah. I just want these people to get their shit together. But you know what? The thing that I realized is it's like. With where where we are right now with all this new about I care about the right people doing it and so for me I'm more interested now in mobilizing. it's not like it's like it's like not like preaching to the converted or whatever it's like mobilizing the converted yeah. mobilizing people who were already willing to do it. And I get it every week, dude, I do these, I do these fantastic Q and A's for my members and, and you've been a part of them. And I get stories every week. They bring tears to my eyes of people. Cause I get emotional about people succeeding. Yeah. That's what breaks me up because I just, I, I want, I, I, I want to see people achieving their highest potential yeah. and every week, man. And I get emails constantly people that said, 
thank you. You've motivated me to do it. I'm doing it. I'm going, I'm crushing it. I'm, I'm, I'm making a living at farming I'm on the land. I've got my family, you know, I had my first, my first child or whatever, you know, it's like, I hear these stories that's, and that's what I want is I want the people who are ready to do it. I want them just to go and do it. And I, and I, and I want to be there, uh, with a team of people like yourself and Rob Avis and, and so many great minds out there to give these people the, 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 the curated content so that they can go and absolutely crush it. Because I think with, with the content that, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to try to sell my, my platform, but, but I think with the content that I've put together with people like you, you've contributed a lot of content to this site um, is it's so high level that it can, because right now we have a problem with there's too much content out there. Just too much shit on YouTube, and you and you don't really know what to believe because it's like, who are these people? And so everybody who who creates content for my site is a bona fide expert and has succeeded in their business. And so that's what I'm trying to do is just give people the right tools to just get them that much further to make them to succeed. And I think the potential to succeed right now is greater than ever yeah. because the motivation's there with people. And, and so you got to get those people in and give them the right skills and they can just go out and crush it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and just one other thing that I just, it's kind of coming out for me is, is cause like this is, this is something, one of the major criticisms of, of permaculture is um, like the, the only way you can make money in permaculture is to teach about permaculture. <laughs> and like so it's, pyramid scheme, right? yeah, kind of, it's yeah. kind of that, but, but the, the, so that I, I just kind of want to address this with this, with like the urban farming stuff is like, you know, because people say, well, you know, Curtis Stone and like, you know, or, or me or Rob is like, you know, like we've, we've done all this stuff and, and we've, we've made money living or we've, we've all made money doing that stuff. I guess not so much Rob, he's, um, he's full on teaching right now, but like we, we've all had our own businesses that were, that were successful and, and were working fine, but we saw a need that wasn't being met. And, and we had, a, for whatever reason, some kind of a skill set or a, a passion for education and the ability to articulate thoughts in a way that other people resonated with. Like I used to be scared, absolutely shitless to talk. I used to have a brutal stutter. I could barely even speak. But I got passionate about farming and I needed help so I had to teach people how to help me. And they're like, oh, that was really good. Do you do workshops? And I was like, well, do you do like public speaking? And then just kept going and going. And I started to do this like, look, like this is, um, but but it, like, if, if, if I had been kind of suppressed by that, you know, um, you know, white male privilege, you know, like, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't kind of, uh, you know, grow to my, my potential or, or help people as much as I can. Um, because I should, you know, check my privilege and just shut up or whatever. It's like, I, I wouldn't have ever grown out of that and, and, no. and rose to the occasion to help as many people as I could. And so it's, it's this subtle, one of the things we talk about in our book is this, it's, this is the difference between the, um, the how do I do less bad um, or the how do I get more goods? It's how do I do more good? And, and like, I know for, for both of us, money is just a metric um, of success. And, and both you and I, when, when we make money, what do we do with it? We reinvest it back into our communities to make more, you know, you, you, you were doing great on your, your farming stuff. You saw there was a need for tools that, that nobody was doing. You started a tool company. And then, you know, there was a need for educational videos that, that people were overwhelmed by the stuff. So you, you started like people, um, I just, I just really wanted to, to bring that up as like this, 
the thing that's driving us isn't money. If, if you and I wanted to make money, there's a million other things that we could do that yeah. make a lot more money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, 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 the, it's the ethical piece and, and how we found a way that with matching our ethics and our ideology, we can make money and make the world a better place. And like, versus as you were saying with these not-for-profits, where they just basically, they, they write grants to hire that pay for people so they can write more grants until they get to the point where they cross the million dollar threshold. And at that point, they can't write enough grants to pay for the people that write grants and the whole thing collapses. And, and it, it does, and like, this has happened over and over and over and over, over and over again. again. It's I've not seen sustainable. And, and plus all the other things that you said. And so I just, um, this isn't the direction I envisioned the conversation going, but I personally think this conversation is more important than, you know, how to plant carrots or, you know, how to build, build swales. Like if, if we don't get this, this ideology piece and the, the, the ethics, but also just, you know, living in a, in a world where like somebody has to do the work, somebody has to create the, 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 the services and, and the products that we need to survive. And if we don't, somebody doesn't do that. Yeah. Like we, we can't just keep, you know, taxing and, and stealing from other people that if nobody's doing anything. No, no. Well, cause then there's no incentive and, yeah. and, and, and we're, we are creatures that are driven by incentive. And so, yeah. yeah. And yeah. So that, that's, that's brilliant. I, I think that was, that was a really good um, breakdown of, of that, um, that kind of whole ideology within farming and, and but 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 also maybe just to finish that off is like you can make money in farming like, even if you don't want to do the teaching stuff or the public speaking or whatever it's like like I know um, I know a lot of my friends in Alberta who are who are doing awesome stuff right now on on you know from the the, the you know small urban farming scale right up to a couple thousand acres and they're just they're doing awesome work and oh, they, yeah. they have no interest in ever teaching or being a public speaker they just want to be farmers well, that's, that's the thing you, that's you great know, that, well yeah and that's an that's a thing that a lot of people don't realize you know i've heard this my, myself and uh, my good friend jean-martin fortier who is an author we're on the same publisher we're, we're, we're best buddies and and we get this a lot you know it's like how come you know what's with these these like white guys these white canadian guys these these farmers where's all these other farmers it's like dude they're farming yeah that's, that's, yeah. they're farming they're not wasting time on social media right like yeah they, they don't need farmers to. are some of the most sort of gener broadly speaking right of course like dozens of exa ex um, exceptions you and i included uh farmers are pretty recluse right like and, and that's that's okay and, and so farmers they farm they do their thing and they go about their lives. They're not sitting there on social media all day. They're not sitting on Facebook chat groups, getting in arguments about like, you know, the importance of keyhole gardens or whatever your white privilege or whatever bullshit subject it is of the day. They're just crushing it. You know, like I, I got a, I got a good buddy um, down in the South uh, Okanagan area who is, he's 28 years old and he is a extremely, successful farmer this guy has four kids he's 28 he's got a wife him and his wife run a massive operation with just the two of them they've got 100 head of cattle they got a two acre market garden 
They they had they raise pigs on pasture, pastured poultry. They do layers. Wow! Just the two of them. It's insane. <laughs> and they homeschool their kids. No way. That's it's insane. And so it's like they're out there, man. Trust me. I mean, it's been my passion to find these people and and show them. But you know what? A lot of farmers don't want to. I actually reach out to a lot of growers. Yeah. And I I often, believe it or not, like you'd think that me, Curtis Stone, the urban farmer was my big YouTube channel and all this bullshit. You'd think that I would get responses from people that would be thrilled to be featured. Yeah. But honestly, a lot of times I send emails and I get either zero response or I get a nice reply just saying, you know, we're just not interested in being on camera. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's, it's, it's the real thing. Like farmers are just busy and, and you don't hear unless, unless somebody tells the story, you don't hear about it because people are obsessed with bad news. That's, and that's, so that's what you hear. Right. And so you tune into the CBC or any of these other propaganda stations and all they do, if they talk about farming, all they do is talk about the sob story because the greater agenda here in my opinion, has been to get people off the land. Yeah. It's been that way for a long time. That's what inspired, you know, is actually a conversation that you and I had a couple of years ago. It's what inspired me to start my podcast, Liberty on the Land. I did the first episode of you. We yeah. talked about a lot of these things, but it's like the system, the controlling, the controllers of this world do not want people self-determined on their own land. They want them herded into CAFOs, you know, caged animal feeding operations in these cities, living mm. on government cheese and doing what they're told, putting on their masks and taking their vaccines. Yeah. And they don't want people like us on the land because we're their biggest threat because we're self-determined. And, yeah. and, and if, if everybody, if more people had that fire in them and that skill set, we wouldn't even need a damn government. No. But that's the, yeah. that's the thing. Yeah. And, and so the couple of things that popped up for me as you're talking about that is like, is, um, you know, a, a lot of these, these farmers, like you said, they're very private people. And like, you, you only hear about the, the bad news and because the guys that are good at it, they don't want to talk. Like I, I've actually the same experience. I've reached out to like some amazing farms that I've heard about, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, around Alberta and, and kind of out East and yeah, just no response back. And, Nothing. um, yeah. but the, so like was in, in Canada, it's like 3% of the population are farmers and like, and of that 3%, like there's a fraction of a fraction of a percent that are interested in regenerative ag. And of that, there's like a fraction of a fraction of people who are interested in regenerative ag have the ability to, to, you know, speak publicly without oh, their knees it's knocking. such a tiny minority. And, and then of that, there's that, a, it's less, it's less people that are actually business owners and managers, right? So 3%, I think that number is actually people that work in agriculture. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Right? yeah that's so smaller than that are the owners of those businesses and managers. Smaller than that are people in regenerative ag. Smaller than that are, are people that are willing to come up front and talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, the, but, but coming back for like, why, at least for me, why I'm, I've, so passionate about um like farming and stuff like this is like farming is not a scalable business or, or regenerative agriculture is not scalable because as as you know wendell berry and west jackson talk about there's an eye to acre ratio it's like it doesn't matter how good of a farmer you are once you kind of have too much land you can't care for it properly or you can't manage it to its fullest potential 
that's it. And so the only way we scale regenerative agriculture is to get more farmers. But how do we get more farmers if the whole, this is like the, the whole kind of farming and martyrdom is just like, well, you know, don't be, and like I'm the youngest of six kids. Every single one of my siblings didn't want to farm because farming sucked. And the only reason I came back to the farm was because I, you know, it was kind of similar to your story is like, I saw is like, if we can't figure this out, then nothing else matters. Yeah. And, but in, so it was kind of like, you know, the, I, I felt like I had no choice, but now I've realized like, well, this can actually be, it can be fun. It can be ethical. You can make, you can make a, a decent living. You can feed people. It's like super meaningful. And like, and I know that that's the only way that we can make a difference, but how do we get more people into that if everybody's a victim and, and it sucks? Or it's, or as, as I say, it's like, nobody wants to join your revolution if it sucks. Yeah. No, like nobody wants to. Well, and it's not so, a fun party to go to either, right? It's no. a drag. And, and, and you know what? We, we were talking about some sort of contemporary issues in the agriculture scene pertaining to, you know, a lot of this leftism, this radical leftism stuff that's come into it. But deeper than that, you just touched on a big issue is this martyrdom thing. And that's like the real deal in just agriculture in general. <laughs> so there's this there's like a- this whole this whole like. I, I'm a martyr and I, I'm just going to stay like, I, I know, I actually know like a lot of people in Alberta that live on these really shitty homesteads and do all this really bad farming just because that's how their father did it or their grandfather did it. And they refuse to change because they self-identify with being a damn martyr. It's, it's a victim. And it's like, like I, I told, like, I'm not kidding. I told like probably half a dozen people that I know just kind of through family connections and stuff like that, that are, that are ranchers in Alberta. Like, do you know anything about mob grazing? Why are you chasing down cattle? They're getting on their quads or their horses and chasing down horses like 10 miles out on these on these massive uh, quarter sections. It's like, what a waste of time. Why are you doing that? But they do it because it's just like, it's part of their identity of being that hardworking rustic farmer. It's internalized. Like they don't think about this, no. but it's totally internalized. It, it is. And so the, there's, there's this joke that... Um like if, if kind of there was, there was an Olympics of martyrdom for kind of like all these different professions, um, farmers would lose on purpose. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's okay. You take it. You take yeah, it. Yeah. 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 Oh. But again, coming back to this, like, like the, um, like all of those farmers who are martyred, who are, who are kind of have that, you know, uh, farming has to be hard. It, if it's not drudgery, you're not doing it right. Yes. And, but, but those same people, when you talk to them, oh, I just, I wish, you know, we could have our communities back, you know, all the, you know, the, the, the churches and the schools, they're shutting down because there's not enough people or, and like, you know, nobody wants to buy my farm because all my kids left or it's like, but, <laughs> but it's, it's because like you have this ideology, but you're going broke and you're miserable and you, you know, that it's, it's the only way that we can save the world and, and you know, restore these ecosystems that we all depend upon, but yet you're actively like cutting the branch that you're sitting. It's just, it's such this weird ideology and, and it is rampant in, in agriculture and um, yeah. And it, and it needs to, it needs to change. And, but this is the funny thing is like, and coming back to why I referred to as like the, you know, the Jordan Pearson of farming is like the guy who points it out 
oh, he's just a bigot, you know, or he's, he's just insensitive or, or, uh, you know, my favorite is a, you know, right wing. It's like, have you ever talked, have you ever talked to Curtis? He's like, (laughs) he's like one of the most like socially minded, uh, like it's just the ironies. I know it's insane. Unbelievable. It's like, I'm super liberal and I mean, but I'm, but I'm super conservative in some ways too, but yeah, this whole thing of right wing left. I mean, who, who cares? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know why. But you know what? All those people that are sitting there talking shit, they're not doing anything. That's, that's exactly. So, I mean, whatever. You you have fun, man. Go go talk all the shit you want. You know, it's like trolls on the internet. People who like troll my chat room on my live streams. It's like, yeah. well, you're doing that, and I'm doing this. So yeah, yeah. okay, what's, man. What's whatever. Gonna, what's gonna make the difference? It's just it's just tall poppy syndrome, and it's sad. Like, and yeah. I, I I like like martyrdom is bad in farming but then there's this like this vicious um like resentment it's it's not even martyrdom it's it's actual resentment of of success within the permaculture community like like tall poppy syndrome and i've seen so many people who are just incredible like you know my colleagues rob michelle who are just they, they worked their butts off for 10 years and like they, they lived in like a uh, like their own words in a hovel like, you know, co-housing with their parents and like with two kids and running three business out of this house. And, um, but they, they, they didn't, they never complained. They, they just worked for 10 years and now like they're starting to succeed after all that hard work. And as soon as they succeeded, everybody started throwing mud at them. And oh, you guys are, you know, making so much money. And like, and of course all the money they make, what do they do? They reinvest it back into the community. They build more services. They, They do all the same things that you're doing. And, and it's just, I mean, I, this is actually kind of a, maybe another thing to talk about is like, it's um, it's really, uh, I, I haven't had this too bad myself because I, <laughs> I think I'm, uh, I haven't really, you know, I've been, I'm pretty new to this stuff. Like you and Rob have been going out a lot more than me, but I see the mud that's getting thrown at you guys. And it's just like, I, I, I brings me to tears just thinking about you guys, like, just cause I know how, how good of people you are and, and the, um, it's just it's really sad that like you know people that are, are doing the most good are 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 you know having their their own peers and colleagues just just cut them down it's it sucks well i i appreciate that but you know you don't have to you don't have to suffer on account of me because <laughs> no the, no <laughs> none of it doesn't it doesn't affect it doesn't affect me at all i mean uh, you know it, it's news to me actually with what you're saying to all these people i just don't pay attention to it i mean i sometimes do because i like to make fun of it because i think it's hilarious like i sometimes go onto my youtube channel comment section and i just troll the trolls uh because they're just pathetic and so it's like okay you know you want to do that man like it doesn't um it doesn't bother me at all and and i don't uh I used to say, you know, I kind of, I'm compassionate for those people. It's like, no, I'm not, I just don't care. Like if they want to be losers, then I hope they lose. Yeah. It's like, a, it's, it's the same thing with with, uh, with the vaccine thing. I, I'm pro-vax, you know? Okay, yeah, you want to take the vaccine? I want you to take the vaccine. <laughs> I want you to take it fast because yeah. the, the sooner that, that you assholes get out of here, the easier it's going to be for us. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that, yeah. so it's like, I, 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 I don't wish ill will upon anybody, but people who choose to self-destruct um, and, and it's like these people who uh, misery loves company kind of thing, yeah. you know, it's like, it uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
keep going with that, man. Cause like, that's obviously working for you. Yeah. And uh, I want nothing to do with it, but you know, you do your thing. Cause you know, it's like, it's like, I'm seeing this right now with the mask thing too, you know, people freaking out about masks. And I've had a number of people like literally like accost me publicly. Cause I don't wear a mask. Like I'll put on my scarf on my face a little bit just so nobody bothers me, but I really don't want to wear it. It's yeah. stupid. I know it's pointless. Yeah. And I had some woman the other day lose it on me. And and she went and talked to the manager. And I know I go into the store all the time. I know everybody there. They were like one of my best customers. I know the management. I know all the staff. They love my kids. It's like I go in there and I'm just, it's all friendly. It's all smiles. And this woman goes in and she's like screaming at the manager and the assistant manager. I know both these guys really well. And they like come and talk to me. They're kind of laughing like, yeah, I know. I'm just kind of doing this to kind of like yeah. give make her feel better and and then she went she went to like she called the she went out of her way to call like the upper management it's a franchise store and like she probably spent hours on this and i'm just thinking man how much does it suck to be you you just spent how many hours trying to tear somebody down yeah and all you actually did was tore yourself down yeah. because you're the one that lost I'm the one living rent-free in your head yeah. and you're the one that is wasting <laughs> energy doing nothing. And that's the thing, like, you know, I've had to deal with this even on, on, on the farming side of things. Cause like, you know, and this, this is what helped me craft the mindset that I have today is that the, the, anytime you're spending time hating on somebody or, um, getting angry about something, whatever it is, you're losing. And so what, the best example I have of this is when I realized this is I had a, 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 a restaurant totally screw me over and they, they were a customer of mine for a number of years. Yeah. And they completely screwed me over out of 10,000 bucks. So there's $10,000 in invoices oh. at first some checks bounced. And then I kept bringing to them because they said, Oh, sorry, we'll sort that out. And then they built it up and then they went bankrupt and they totally screwed me. And it was, it was quite, it was in a way it was kind of malicious. They were like, yeah, we're not paying you. You're an asshole, whatever. Like it was, it was like, holy shit, man. Like I would, I'd done so many good things for them. I'd posted about them on social media, whatever. And I was angry about this dude. I was angry. Like I was livid. I don't think I got more than a couple hours sleep for an entire month. I was so angry, but I got to a point where I just realized like, I just looked at, I kind of like had that sort of third person experience where you kind of like step out of your body and you kind of observe your life. And it's like, you're in a video game. Yeah. And, and I was looking at myself being like, man, this last month has been pathetic. Like I haven't really done much. I, I I've been very unproductive mm -hmm. and I had this realization that is if I'm, they're living rent free in my head. So they're like, yeah, they screwed me out of money, but they're also screwing me out of what's really important. And that's my heart. Mm -hmm. And that's like, that's my soul energy. And that's the thing that really makes stuff happen in life. That's the most important. Your, your soul force is the most important thing you have. And, and that's when I realized like, okay, yeah, they screwed me out of this money, but they're screwing me out of my life force right now. Yeah. And that's where they're actually screwing me the worst. And so that's when I realized that I just had to walk away from it. I didn't forgive them. I just forgot about it. Basically just move on. I don't care. It's a waste of time to, 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 to put energy into that. And then, and now, you know, going through that hardship has allowed me to have pretty thick skin with, with this. Yeah. Cause when you're a public figure, people come at you. Right. And so 
And that's just because that's the state of being that a lot of people are in is they're not in a good state. Yeah. And they've been brainwashed their entire lives and, and convinced that they're pathetic and they convinced that they, you know, the environmentalist movement has done a really good job of, of making people feel like viruses, you know, and they, mm-hmm. and they hate themselves. A lot of these liberals, you know, like they don't have kids, they're bummed out, they're alone, especially during all this stuff they're, they've been locking themselves down in their apartment, who knows like what they're doing, but they're not getting out and they're not happy. And they think human beings are a parasite on this planet and they, th- and that includes themselves. And so they have a very low opinion of themselves and it's like, well, okay, you're going to believe that way. Then that's your thing, but I'm not, I'm moving onward and upward. And so that's, that's been my recipe for a long time. That's been my MO is that I don't let any of that shit bother me. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's a good, um, good lesson. I think it was the Buddha who said something like, you know, the hatred is the only poison that does more damage to the giver than the receiver. Yes. And, and it's, it's so true. And the, the other piece that this to kind of, you know, clarify that, cause I've, I've had the same thing happen where it's, it's only been uh, actually, it's only been one customer. It wasn't $10,000. It was, it was only a, like it was only a thousand and, and I kind of whittled it, whittled it down over the years, but it was, it was just like the loss of, of like trust and like yeah. you know, re- really good friend. Same thing we've done. Like we, we were friends and, and to not get that, it really, it took the wind out of my sails. But the, um, the thing that I kind of got to for, for that, um, my motto was like, can you imagine how that person must feel? Like for them to say those, to, to, you know, to say those things or to do those things, like, can you imagine the, the stuff that must be going on in their own head for them to treat somebody else that badly? That's exactly and, it. And they're living in that space all the yeah. time. And so it's in it, there. It, it's kind of that, that compassionate piece is like, first off, it's like, it, it doesn't do any good to get mad about it. And, and second is like, man, like they're like, I, I can't imagine how, you know, what's going on, and, but also like the, the guilt that they must feel of like, of like not because they know that it's not right to do that. And, and, oh, yeah. and yeah, like they'll try to turn you into the, you know, the bad guy so that they can, <laughs> they can play victim, even though, because that's what allows them to not take responsibilities. They can, exactly. they can justify it to themselves. And yep. Um, yep. yeah, it's, it's, uh, these are all, <laughs> again, like just, I'm sure I, I kind of expected us to talk more about farming, but I, I'm, this is the most important stuff. This if farming is easy, it's the, um, it's, you know, being centered in yourself and, and, you know, clear in your goals and, yep. and, and, and having the ability to pick yourself up, up when you're down, because like you said, you know, like, you know, you lost 80 customers, you had to refund them. How much was that? That would have been like fucks, 50 grand. It was, yeah, it was significant. So like, you know, 50 grand hit. And then I you basically know, had a bank bank account full ready to go into the new season. And I basically had to empty it out. And I already spent some of that money too. Yeah. I, yeah. on seeds and stuff which, which sucked and so yeah yeah and, I, and i've i've done that and like like i've, I've made twenty thousand dollar mistakes uh mm-hmm. on the farm where it's like like i can't get that back and so oh dude I've, yeah. yeah and but like 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 this is the stuff that you know a lot of farmers and this is this isn't to like you know play the victim this is like this stuff happens and so like how are you going to pick yourself up when when that happens and so mm-hmm. I just, I love the kind of story arc that we've built today talking about how you, you came, you know, you were passionate about, you know, being interested or, um, you know, living off the land and, and being kind of free is, is, you know, you know the, the, the thing that, that drove me to it as well. But starting with like, I'm, I'm super lucky. Like I was born on a, like a permaculture farm with two, you know, amazing parents who 
who've been doing this stuff for you know two decades before I was even born. And um, I, I actually I can't I can't imagine jumping in like with with uh, with both feet and like having no no experience. And so it's um, yeah, like that that's, that takes a lot of guts and and um, and, a, and a lot of hard work. Oh yeah, I mean I've I've always um, I've always been kind of the guy to do that. Like I just kind of go hardcore into things. Yeah. Uh, this has been the longest thing that I've done. Uh, actually, music, I probably haven't surpassed that. I probably, uh, no, no, I have. I have surpassed that. I really only gave eight years to being a working musician. And now I'm I'm on 12 years of this. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, if you're passionate about something and if you're passionate about something, it's easy to do it. it is. And I, my passion for agriculture has not wavered one bit. Uh, I will tell you, though, to be honest there were moments especially when i was in the in the deep of going to these urban farming conferences and all that where i was starting to look at myself and be like oh my god what have i gotten myself into like look at these people i'm hanging out with like um i you know i just didn't fit in i could i could i could fit in because i know i know how to talk to people and, and build rapport and all that but there were moments where i was just going this is this scene has kind of gone a bit crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but you know what? Uh, what's fueled me more into agriculture now has been the current present situation that we're in now. I, I actually feel more of a passion to it. I really got obsessed with um, the law movement yeah. uh, for a number of years, starting in 2016. I really got, I learned some stuff about the Canadian government. We don't have to go down all those rabbit holes, but but I learned some stuff that, you know, shocked me to the core and I and I started to do my own deep research and I got passionate about that and I got I started to kind of like waver from agriculture in the sense that I was like this stuff is so important I can't believe people don't know about this what the hell but um with this the stuff that we're in right now I actually feel more of a calling to come back to yeah. agriculture more than ever and, and and for me it's not so much even just about urban farming you know my book was the urban farmer because that was what I had. I got into urban farming because I had no other options. Uh, I, I, I wanted more than anything to do what you're doing, to be honest. I wanted to be on big land and doing broad acre permaculture. That was my dream. Yeah. You know, I was really inspired by Darren Doherty uh, and, and Jeff Lawton and, and Mollison and David Holmgren and all those, those old school Australian permaculture guys. Those were my biggest influences and that's what I wanted to do the most. Um, but I got into urban farming because it was something that I could do. And I was like looking at yeah. what was available to me. And when I saw some people farming on yards, I was like, Hey, I can, I, th that, that looks, that's accessible to me. I don't have to go and buy a bunch of land. I don't have to get a tractor and all this stuff. Yeah. I can do that. And yeah. so that's, that's what led me to be the urban farmer. Now for me, it's mostly, you know, as far as my knowledge of agriculture it's really market gardening you know the urban piece is isn't really that important i i, I think it's it I, and i and actually when i when i look at my book you know it's been out for a number of years now when i look back on it because i wrote it in 2016 when i look back on it and the big takeaways are the things that i wrote about in regards to market gardening the yeah. urban stuff there's some yeah there's some stuff there but but it's really it was really about a mindset on how to approach a farm how to 
um, build cust a customer base, yeah. how to cater to that customer base, and then how to lay out production in the field so that it coincides with a, with an ever changing uh, customer base. And 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 for for me at the time, it was really based around selling to restaurants and how do I make my farm production fit with restaurants that are constantly changing what they need Yeah, and making yeah. my production lean. And so that, 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 that's what I feel is my greatest contribution uh, when I look back on that book and, and, and yeah. where it is today. Yeah. Well, and it's, and it's, it's a great, like uh, I was actually, when I, when I kind of, uh, when I bought it off audible and, and, and started listening to it, I was blown away because I had expected it to be a lot more kind of like technique oriented, like, you know, how to grow vegetables and I was very pleasantly surprised to see that it was, it was a much more, um, you know, there was, there was, you know, the philosophy stuff in it. There was, there was, you know, all the stuff that you were talking about, like the, you know, the, the business planning, the kind of, it was, it was more high level principles. And yeah, there, there is some really good information about, you know, production stuff in there, but like your book is, is I would recommend it to any farmer, whatever you're producing, there are principles that you could, you know, you know, um, glean from from the the book that you can apply to any operation whether you're you know doing cattle or um or you know doing urban farming so it's and and you know sadly there's there's very few books on audible that have to do with agriculture i think yours is like maybe one of ten is that <laughs> um, right like <laughs> every every time i get a credit i go and search like agriculture because um you know i'm looking for stuff and and you know, there's, there's starting to be a, a few more now, like I think South and stuff is up there and, oh, good. and, you know, Gabe Brown's got his, but, um, oh, good. but for a while it was like, it was your book and I think Jean Martin's was oh, like, hilarious. The only one. So, um, yeah, I, I, I would highly recommend it to, um, uh, you know, to anybody who's, who's in agriculture. Um, so, I mean, we've, we've chatted for, for an hour and a half. I don't know if you're, uh, <laughs> we didn't really get into the permaculture stuff. Well, I'm okay if you want to get into that. Cause I, 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 I love that, uh, you wanted to talk about some of that stuff. And okay, so sure. I'm, yeah. I've, I've got time. Let's, uh, let's do it. Why don't you give me one second? I'm just going to grab a bit more water. You bet. Okay. So yeah. Why don't we, uh, why don't we dive into, uh, actually, the, before we dive into the permaculture stuff, there was um, there was one uh, one other uh, kind of big takeaway that I, I really really loved, um, and this this also kind of speaks to your um, the like your philosophy around just like you being a caring, uh, just decent human being. But there's this this line you have in the book is like when, when you make a mistake with a customer, you make it right by making it better than right. And uh, that's always been my motto. I just never had a, uh, like a phrase for it, but it's like, that's, that's exactly the, um, the mindset. It's like when you, when you screw up, own it and you don't, you don't take it up to a hundred percent, you, you go above and beyond. Absolutely. Because, be, and that's something that my dad actually in, hammered into my head at a fairly young age. Um, I saw him do a number of entrepreneurial activities which most of them he failed at. Um, but he, he succeeded in maintaining his integrity. And I always, I always admired that about my dad, but um, that's something that, that, you know, actually, even when you think about it economically and, and however you measure the economics, you know, measuring time or money or social capital or whatever it is um, that philosophy 
has um, helped me in every business enterprise I've ever done. Because when you fail and you screw something out, screw something up, and and like you said, you own it. Um, what 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 the tendency to happen is this was what I wrote about in my book because I saw this happen at the farmers market. That's really where I learned this and sort of and sort of uh, in, in, um, put this into my being is that I would like you know somebody would get like a bad bag of salad or something they'd come back or, and most people who would get something from uh, somebody get a product that they didn't like from somebody they just wouldn't come back. Yeah, uh, and that's what most people do. Yes. And, and I realized that fairly early on, just through observation, that when somebody came back to tell me, that's a signal in that they want to give me an opportunity to continue a relationship with them. Yeah. And so that's actually an honor and a privilege. Yeah. If somebody takes the time, because that, and the way I see it is that they've actually put skin in the game, because that could be considered risky. Right. Because, you know, think about some of these crusty farmers that we know, <laughs> these guys, you, you can't tell them anything. They're going to lose their minds. Right. Um, and so somebody to come forward and tell you that you made a mistake is them putting skin in the game because they're willing to take a risk in that you might not say a, a good thing and it could be a bad interaction. So I'm honored and privileged when somebody and I do it even with everything I do now from the field, if a customer comes and has a complaint or an issue. I do something to make it better for them. And so, um, you know, it's, you, you go above and beyond because now they've come up, they've stepped to the plate. Now you have an opportunity to make it into something good. And every time I did that, it came back in leaps and bounds. And so somebody came and said, oh, I got this. And uh, so it's like, oh, okay, here's another one. Here's some other shit too. You know what I mean? Like, like, what have you got to lose? Because you just did that. So not only is that that individual going to come back and be a customer again, but now they're going to sing your praise because you just demonstrated a massive amount of integrity that they're going to respect. Yeah. So well, you, you it's, it's a win-win. It, it totally is. And, and the, the um, so first off, like th that's just a, a perfect example of kind of the, the ideology of, of like, you can still have that service to others and, and the ethics and like all those things and, and run a business, but like, it's actually, what's good for them is good for you. Like you don't have to, you know, beat yourself up. Oh, you made a mistake. It's just like, no, like it's, it's great. It's a learning experience. Everybody makes mistakes and you, you, you can, you know, appreciate it. But, but the other thing, and this is like, because of like the rampant martyrdom victimhood in farming, what, when, when you do that, I, and I, I, from personal experience with my customers, the horror stories that my customers have had engaging with other farmers is it's despicable. And yeah. like, I'm not, I'm not going to name names either, but like the biggest names in like, you know, organic and regenerative agriculture in, in Alberta here, should be ashamed of themselves for, for, for the way that they've treated some my now customers and, and just some of the stories that I've heard. And, um, and, and then, but I've also made mistakes too, but like when I, when I screw up, it's like, here's an extra package of, of sausages or, yeah. you know, here's a credit on your next order, whatever it is. And people are just blown away. And so like, particularly in agriculture, if you adopt this in your business, um, you stand like, like you're, it's, like in other businesses, it's, it's not like, if, you know, if you go to a restaurant or a hotel, something's not right. It's like there, you kind of expect it. Like, well, you know, yeah. The customer service standards are a lot higher in those industries. Yeah. yeah. But, 
but yeah. but here is like if you do it, you're you're in a totally other league, and 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 people want that, and it's mm-hmm. and again, it's like that lifts the bar up, and it it it's it's just a totally different philosophy, a way of doing business, and if and if we if we could have more farm businesses like that, and more permaculture businesses like that, like we would draw more people into it, and and this yeah. whole thing would grow. The, you know the. the... The, the good thing is, um, and this is another, like I've been telling people for years, there's never been a better time to get into agriculture, but, and I still believe that even more to this yeah. day than what's going on right now. But yeah. um, when you look around at the competition, <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah. it, you know, just, it, like, I don't, I, I don't say this to demean farmers, no. but I'm just, I'm just trying to be, I'm just being realistic. Like when you look around at the competition, it is not hard to stand out from it. Sure, if you move to some trendy town like Asheville, North Carolina, and you want to cut into the market gardening scene, yeah, you got competition because a lot of hipsters doing it. But in most other places, you know, it is, it's wide open, man. It's wide open because one, very few people farm. And two, very few people do it well. And three, very few farmers are actually likable. <laughs> All the people I've interviewed are very likable. I kind of seek those people out. But but you know, like just walk around a farmer's market, man. I mean, come on. Like, yeah, I, I don't I don't take pride in saying this. I'm not trying to cut people down. I'm just trying to say to people, like, look, there's not a lot of competition in agriculture. And yeah. you know, what what you really have to ask yourself is what do you want to get out of it? You know, what, what is your goal with it all? And, and is it about profit? Is it about lifestyle? Is it about families, about community? Is it about all the above or some of those are, what is it, you know? And then that's from that position, from the holistic context, I believe is, is the best way to. Yeah. Versus versus for most people, it's like, it's the, you know, farming is this, this kind of ideology of, of, you know, being connected with, you know, nature, like we talked about, but like, but there's, there's none of the other kind of like real world stuff. And, and so like, and I've seen so many people do this, that they get into farming and they're, you know, wide eyed and bushy tailed. And there's like a kind of like a five-year honeymoon period. And after that, it's like, they either have, they either um, kind of fail forward or they, they become, or they like to- totally, you know, fail altogether and they go back to the city or whatever, or they become this like just bitter, resentful, you know, farming doesn't work and it, and it has to suck. Yeah. And like, they somehow yeah. kind of get this, this, you know, toughened skin around them. And it, and sadly, that's, that's the majority of people who are still in farming is the people who are just, they've become immune to drudgery and, um, uh, and, and that's kind of the face of what, of what farming has become. So it's, 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 it's bad, but it's also a great opportunity for, for new people who want to get into farming. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Now let's get into the, <laughs> the permaculture stuff. So there's, um, I, I don't know how many times I've had <laughs> somebody send me this article from you. Uh, it's uh, thinking that you would be angry about it. Yeah. They're like, Did you hear what Curtis Stone said about permaculture? <laughs> and uh, cause there's a, there's a medium, uh, medium article that you wrote back in 2018 yeah, I did. I did. I wrote a Medium article about it, and then I also uh, did a video about it on YouTube. That's right. And yeah, so it's, it's, it's probably triggered it's called, people. But. What, what permaculture got wrong: dispelling five common myths. And like I said, I've I've had 
I've had this, I remember a dozen times somebody sent this article to me, just like, what do you, how do you respond to this? Is this true? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it's a hundred percent. I love it that people send it to you and yeah. then they get the surprising response that you agree. Well, okay, but the, but the, the thing is like, it's the, the stuff that you pointed out, we'll, if we'll go kind of go through all of them, because I think it's, it's a great conversation is like it, it isn't really what my, my only criticism is it wasn't what permaculture got wrong. It was what people got wrong about permaculture. Yes, that's exactly. My, that's my only <laughs> criticism. For sure. But, but, but the, the, the article, the, the title's clickbait, right? Oh, totally, totally. And so it would, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have had the same shock value if I would have said it that way in the title. Uh, because I did kind of clarify that in the article. I mean, it's, I wrote that a while ago. It's almost three years, but um, but yeah, you're right. That that's that's more precisely what it is. Yeah, and and so I mean, like the I think the um, well, let's, let's just go through them. So the, the first the first one you've got is is this this myth of the self sustaining farm. Yes. Yeah, so the myth of the self-sustaining farm, you know, and, and, and really a, lo a lot of these came, when I wrote this article, I was already kind of like a veteran into agriculture and all that, right? Like I'd been at it for a number of years, like I guess, you know, eight years into it at that point when I wrote that article and I traveled to visited many farms, had been on tons of permaculture homesteads and all this. And um, I was kind of thinking back to my early sort of, being so enamored with the, the, the some of the f early stuff that Bill Mollison put out, like he had this great video series. It was on some kind of Australian television network. It was filmed, I think, in the early nineties. Yeah, it was. It was called the Global Gardener. The Global Gardener. That's yeah. it. And yeah. my favorite episode is the one where he goes to Robert Hart's um, uh, food forest. I love that episode. I just love that guy, Robert Hart. I just thought he was the <laughs> coolest guy. But. Um, but it was just a lot of this, like, I remember, you know, it was like just showing all these beautiful homesteads. I remember he visited this dairy in Germany that had that cool biodynamic thing with the, the, oh, the, yeah, the structured floor water floor and all that shit. Floors, yeah. And uh, I was like, oh man, that's so cool. And I just, and then kind of like thinking about it from that wide-eyed, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed sort of wow being so enamored by it but then the hard reality of all the farms i've visited over the years and just never seen what what was promised you know and just and, and because and, and also through my my own experience of just grinding on a farm to make it happen and you know i just i visited hundreds of farms around the world and like it's just um that doesn't exist and and, and so many people that are like newbies to permaculture think that you can just set up this permaculture farm and it just takes care of itself because that's what Jeff Lawton said you know and Jeff never really said that it was just people interpreted that way actually Jeff read that article and he actually said he liked it um, <laughs> but he's if you look in the medium comments I think his comment is still there but uh, but I like Jeff and I've, I've I've talked to Jeff a number of times and I think he's a great guy and I think Jeff's made an incredible contribution to the world and, and permaculture being that vehicle. But I think sometimes we're all guilty of this. Uh, I'm sure I've been guilty of this in some ways myself is when you, when you um, present something, you want to present it in its best light. And so I think uh, it, it's not necessarily anybody's fault. It's just that 
some people present this this idea of this thing that because of this 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 permaculture thing that takes care of itself because i've also just hear it a lot you know like i've had people that beg me to come and volunteer on my farm and all that and they always talk about, oh you know we just want to like set it up and then just like live in the garden of eden it's like well that's not how it works and and the one thing too people don't realize i think i touched on i don't know if i touched on this in that article it's been two years but it's um perennial crops are there's this myth that perennial crops are a lot easier than annual crops. And, and a lot of people in the regenerative ag space, they like to talk shit about like, like I've heard guys like Mark Shepard and I respect Mark, but I've heard guys like Mark and even Toby Hemingway used to say this and Toby Hemingway was a friend and he's really missed um, yeah. a couple of years ago. But um, you know, these guys would say, you know, annual crops are drudgery, you know, and, 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 and perennial crops are this great thing. And it's like, well, dude, have you ever worked on an actual like orchard? It's a lot of work with perennial farms. If you don't, if, if you skip a year with pruning and it depends on how you set up the farm because there are people like Stefan Subkoyak who have done this new thing, which they don't have to do a lot of pruning, but most perennial farms, they need to be maintained. And if they're not maintained and you skip a year, like a vineyard if you don't prune a vineyard for a year and you go back the next year it is a nightmare yeah and 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 so there's this there's this myth that perennial crops and all these things just like this you can set up this food forest and it'll just produce but that's not really how it works totally well and so the 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 two things that kind of stood out for me with with the the idea for like the the self-staining farmers first bill mollison explicitly says you know, many places, um, you, you will you will never see uh, the idea of self-reliance in any of my books. I don't talk about it. Self-reliance is impossible. What what we need is community interdependence. Like you you cannot do yes. everything yourself. And so this this idea of of having you know this this kind of diversified farm where you produce everything you could ever possibly need. You know, you make your own clothes and you do, yeah, you, right. can't, you, you cannot do it. It's, it's physically impossible. And, yep. and that, and like, so I, one of my biggest mistakes when I started, came back to our farm and kind of transitioned to a permaculture farm is I tried to do all the things. I got bees, I got pigs, I got dairy cows. I planted, you know, $10,000 of the fruit trees. I did or I, everything and, and everything fell apart. And, and I had to start cutting, you know, it's like, if you're juggling balls, you know, no matter how good of a juggler you are, you can only juggle so many. And, and as soon as you throw in that extra ball, you drop everything. Yeah. And so like, I hit that, that ceiling. And so now I've realized like, Hey, what am I, what am I good at? What is my land, you know, really good at? And what is, what is, what's, what is there a need for? It's like, I'm just going to focus on that. Yeah. And then I'm going to try to get other people to do the other things that I don't, I'm not good at. And, and we're going to, we're going to train. We're going to have a community. And exactly. It's, it's, the, it's, uh, so the, the the other piece of that is in respect to annuals, and so a lot of a lot of uh, people in the permaculture community, you know, it came from this whole idea of the the seed bomb, yeah, the, the yeah. permaculture seed bomb, right? Cool. And so uh, and partly kind of like gorilla gorilla gardening movement and all that is that like you can just throw around seeds, and I I think Sepp Halter kind of. Yeah. unintentionally perpetuated this idea though i don't think it was, it was pretty pretty deliberate in his book and in his okay book. yeah okay well then then there we go but but you know 
and I, I'd seen these early videos of Seth Holzer because I got into him a long time ago too. Like before most people knew who he was, I was digging up stuff about him. And yeah. you know, there's these early videos where he's just like walking around. He's got this sack and he's going around. Oh, there's a head of lettuce here, and oh, there's a beet there, and it's like. <laughs> Can you imagine how inefficient that? I know it's like you would. That's like the only time he's from a gardening perspective. What a pain in the ass! So like your wife want like you're having you're having family over for dinner. You need you need to have like four pounds of romaine lettuce. You need ten carrots. You know what? What are you gonna do? Like walk a quarter mile through all this like peppered random stuff all over the place? It's like how inefficient is that? You know when it comes to annual vegetables, I don't care what scenario you're in. Mini monocultures just makes sense right and, I, and i'm not talking about like real monocultures but i'm talking a bed or a row or whatever you yes. need to have things consolidated into an area it's also better for soil management too to know like what rotates better to the next thing and, and whatnot but like you know in with with respects to intentional communities and things like that and i think that's you know one, one thing i'm more interested in now these days is that if you're growing food for a community, it's like one thing to grow food for restaurants and commercial enterprises like I've written about and done for many years. But even if you're growing for a community, that community has needs. And if you're not organized to deliver X pounds of this and X pounds of that per week to service the needs of the community, you're not being efficient and you're going to burn yourself out. Yeah. So, so the need to, what also, also the, the, how, how do they plan? It's like, if, if somebody's been getting, you know, for me, it's like, like, like I have customers who get, you know, 100, 200 pounds of meat from me every year. And it's like, if I screw up and I miss a year, like, what else? They're like, there's, they can't go somewhere else and get, cause I'm the only producer in Alberta that raises the kind of, you know, pork that I produce. And so like, I'm screwing them over too. That's yeah. absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that one. And so it's like, it's this, this idea of, of it's not about self-reliance, it's about community interdependence. And, and also like, you know, your point about like mini monocultures, like that's what nature is. Like if you've ever gone picking wild blueberries or Saskatoons, yeah. or like, like plants, they grow, they grow in mini monocultures. That's right. And, and there's a bunch of reasons for that because, you know, the seeds typically drop in, in one thing or because they're, it's actually efficient for pollinators yep. to, um, uh, to, to, to do that kind of stuff. Uh, like like when, when a bee goes out and, and is, is pollinating flowers, it only gets one kind of nectar at a time. And so it wants to be efficient with its time. Yep. And so like by doing that stuff, it's the same thing. Like my first forest garden that I planted was just like, and I actually read, um, this is, it's a really good book. Uh, by Martin Crawford. Uh, it's called uh, oh, yeah. Creating a Forest Garden. It's a really good book about how to build a permaculture or a, a, a forest garden. But he explicitly says, this is not a permaculture book. And like, there's there's no concept of like efficient layout. And so it was just like, okay, you know, where are you going to put your canopy trees? Wherever you like. And like, there's just no pattern to it. It's just like throw shit everywhere and then just kind of fill in the gaps. And so like, like it's brutal to harvest you know, the, um, like, like you said, it takes, you know, you know, walk a quarter mile to pick a cup, cup of berries. And so like my next forest garden that I planted, I did everything in like 50 foot blocks. Yeah. Um, where it's like, like, there's one, one species or one variety in this 50 foot block and it doesn't repeat, you know, for a few blocks so that I've got still all the benefits. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, yeah. the, 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 we, I think we kind of, we, we killed a couple, uh, couple of birds with one stone there because the um the, the the next one was was this idea of like the lazy gardener 
um that right uh, yeah like this idea yeah it's the same idea it's the same that, thing know. it's like it, 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 it came from that original video of mollison he's sitting there with the yeah. newspaper i love it it's great he, he he was he was a real poet you know yeah. um but he it was like you know tired of bad news and he's like let's turn it into some good news and then he uses it as malt so like it's it's yeah. great um but like okay that's a great way to do potatoes for like one person but if you want to do potatoes like you know like I, i've got a half acre farm that's one thing we didn't talk about but i have a half acre farm that i lease that so i still i i never stop farming but i but i but i stopped commercially farming so i have i have a half acre farm that i lease 60 50 foot beds four um 50 foot caterpillar tunnels and it's just like a, we call it SHTF farm. Shit hits the fan farm. It's just like a, it's like a, it's a farm for just growing an abundance of food for the people. It's a co-op farm. Yeah. And but I manage it, and I do, I kind of do all the the technical stuff and just delegate to the crew. But um, you know, we grew a lot of potatoes there this year, and you know, I actually wish we would have grown more. But like doing that with mulch and newspaper there's just no way in hell that would have been efficient. It's just an absolute pain in the butt. And, and the, the same goes with straw mulch. And I, that's another one in there too, we can get into, but. Totally. Well, and so it's like the, and this, this actually, I mean, the, your kind of preface to these things is like, it's all about context. And yeah. so it's like mulch works great in a, in a kitchen garden where it's really small and you've got mostly, you know, you know, perennials that you're, you know, have to disturb the soil a lot. You don't have to dig down um, the, if, or, or in certain climates, but it's like, if you use straw mulch in Vancouver, it's like, you just, you got a slug factory. That's like, yeah. like, yeah. there's nothing you can grow that won't be eaten by, um, by slugs. That's right. And so, you know, okay, I, well then, oh, go ahead. You know, even like, so like I have, you know, in a way I have, I've done a, I've done, I've grown food in a few different contexts yeah. because I've had my commercial farm at, at a couple different scales, you know, as small as a quarter acre, as large as two and a half acres, uh, you know, on 30 inch beds, two and a half acres is a lot of, a lot of farm. Um, and, uh, and then I've had my small homestead, urban homestead here where I'm right now in Kelowna, where I've got raised beds. Now I've got a large acreage that's more of a permaculture uh, property. And I've also got my, my uh, sort of co-op market farm or, or, or market garden. Um, but even in, my, even in my homestead, urban homestead, small garden, I've got, you know, like my lot down here is a quarter acre. I've got seven raised beds in my front yard, which are 30 inch wide by uh, 18 feet long. And then I've got four beds in the back that are 30 inch wide by 23 feet long so it's it's a good size garden um but even at that scale i couldn't imagine wasting time to put mulch on my beds like i just i couldn't imagine doing it having said that i mulch in a sort of inadvertent way in that i just lay on an uh an inch of new compost every year yeah. at least an inch. And I plant directly into that. Now that doesn't work like a straw mulch because you can't just directly plant into a straw mulch. I find straw mulch an absolute pain in the butt because it ends up growing back and yeah. it's, it, it doesn't, it's just more work than it's worth. Mm -hmm. But if you buy good compost or you make good compost, you get the, you get the mulch and the fertility at the same time. 
And so that that's kind of been my strategy in my yeah. garden. And it's actually the same strategy on my farm now. We I put at least an inch on those beds every year. And I did it with my commercial farm too. Maybe not an inch, but because on, on a larger scale, it, you know, it gets costly and maybe even unnecessary to put that much compost down. But, it, you know, it just depends yeah. on your context. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's what I love about that. It's like, I, I, I have no doubt that mulch works great in Jeff Lawton and Bill Mollison's garden in, in like in Australia where they get, you know, a meter of, of evaporation a year. Yeah. And they've got these like heavy, like it, it probably works perfectly there. But the, the problem with, with, um, with permaculture in this kind of like the, the context piece is like, um, people will see these kind of these um, these principles, but it's because principles are kind of abstract. You have to demonstrate them with some kind of a practice. But then, but then people take that that practice and they see it as like, well, that's a that's a prescription. I have to do exactly this thing. It's or it's a recipe, right? Versus looking at it in terms of no, it's actually this is a principle that I was illustrating with a practice. I'm not telling you to do exactly this thing. I'm just saying this is what worked for me, and like. So the shitty thing is like, unless you give this like, you know, half an hour, you know, backstory about context, every single video, Ugh, nobody I wants know. to hear is like, and so that this is the problem that guys, we all get into is like, well, you said that this worked and I tried and it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, uh, you know, you should have watched some of my other videos because I warned you that it wasn't going to work. Yep. Yep. Um, so yeah, we, we the, the, uh, the first one was you know, like the myth of the self-sustaining farm the myth of like the, the lazy gardener and this idea that like you don't have to do work. And so the, this is the, just to, to riff on this a bit more, <clears throat> there's a difference between work and drudgery. Yes. It's like, like, so the drudgery is, is work that is uh, laborious and futile, you know, pushing a rock up a hill is the, the myth of Sisyphus. Yes. Like you're, 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 you know, um, uh, um, you know, working really hard to go nowhere basically. Yeah. Yeah. Versus, versus if, if you're doing work and, and you're getting some returns from that, it's, it's the return on invested energy. That's the yeah. big piece. So yeah. like we do a ton of work on our farm, but, yeah. and, but the return on energy invested is massive. Yeah. <clears throat> and so that's, that's the, the key piece. And like Absolutely. the, um, so yeah, there's, there's that, the, the, the myth of lazy farmer mulch, everything. Uh, I think we covered that pretty good. Yeah. Uh, oh, I love this one. Swale everything. <laughs> <laughs> well and I, when I when I was geeking out on permaculture you know 20 years ago or I don't know not 20 years ago maybe 15 16 years ago I was just so obsessed with swales and it was like everybody everybody is everybody is this is it this is amazing you know the water plume you know Jeff Lawton's videos on that and oh man that's so sweet um but but i've i've met a number of people in southern california and northern california who have properly screwed up swales who have like damaged property yeah right and i think i think i alluded to that too i didn't want to name any names but um it can be it's a context thing too right so yeah was, you know, was that, like was that spawn holes? what's that was that spawn holes craig spawn holes Oh, I don't know. I don't want to. I want to say, oh, but well, yeah, he's. he's I've, I've heard he's him talked talk about that. Yeah, I've heard him talk about. Yeah, it. I'm not. I wasn't specifically thinking about him, but I have heard him talk about that. But um, uh, what was the other thing? Here's the other thing too with swales is like you know again it's context. Yeah. Um, my property, my current acreage is rock. <laughs> right. 
I know, so, yeah. It's just rock. So it's so how the hell? Rock, yeah. How the hell am I going to do swales? Yeah, it doesn't work. Yep. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm doing some. Ter- I'm doing some badass terraces with a, with a big 200 backhoe with a blade. Um, but uh, yeah, like y- you can't just do all these things. And it's the same with even like key line plows and stuff like that. Like the stuff doesn't work everywhere, man. And it no. and it isn't needed everywhere either. No. You know, I've seen some farms. I don't. I don't want to name names, but. I've I've seen some farms that have done key line and I haven't seen any visible benefit. Yeah, exactly. And that's the same that's the same thing with us. Like I started with key line because I didn't want to do the swales because I I had this hunch that it was this kind of you know a silver bullet type thing. And and so instead I chased after a different silver bullet. And I was absolutely convinced that you know subsoiling was going to fix all of our problems and our you know our pasture uh, decline in production. And I, you know, I bought a seven, seven, eight thousand dollar plow and hooked it up to our 150 horsepower tractor. And it was just a complete, like, there was all these problems. Like the, it just, it, it didn't work. Like it, it, it showed in the videos. It made a mess of our fields. And maybe I didn't have it set properly. It wasn't a, a yeoman's plow, but those are like 30 grand, and you can't get to, you know, custom ship one from Australia. So I got this different one. Anyways, it was just. It didn't work, and and it, but it wasn't addressing my weak link. Uh, the, and but as a result of doing that, I've kind of I got closer to what it was, which was mostly just nutrients. It had nothing to do with with water infiltration, and so I actually ended up, I was building swales for a different reason, which was for um, water harvesting, so that we could actually because our wells were failing. Um, and I have seen some benefit in terms of you know the 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 plumes actually do exist uh, if you can get enough water, but you need a lot of water. Like people don't realize like there's no point in building a water storage if you don't have a water source. It's like yeah. building a swale doesn't magically make your property have more water. <laughs> and, and like, I, 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 I say that it's like, it seems so obvious. I literally hand dug like a kilometer of swales hand, by hand. Um, there was like a bunch of these really short ones. And then when I was done, I got a look back and I was like, where's the water going to come from? Like it yeah. was, it was like a, it was like on this hill, like a complete separate watershed at the top of the hill. And it was like, <laughs> where's the water coming from on the top of the hill? Yeah. Where's it going to come from? And I, but I didn't realize it. And so this is um, like one of the, I, I, like permaculture is this incredible, it's a design system about how to think is all these great things, but people do shit like that. And then they say, well, that like permaculture doesn't work. And it's like, well, no, you were just an idiot. Yeah. Oh, 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 for sure. For sure. Yeah. And, and, and I, I've heard that same criticism about market gardening. You know, I, there was this big article that was in the New York Times a, a year or two ago. And it was this, this couple that were all burnt out and jaded and, and they were just talking trash and they were even kind of like taking jabs at, uh, at people, public people in the space. And, yeah. and it was like, no, you just suck at it. That's why you just did it wrong. Well, it's, and it's the same thing. I mean, not, not to go back into the, the, you know, the martyrdom stuff, but like that, the whole Chris Newman, Joel South and stuff is just, oh. and the articles that have been written, they're just, they're nobody's safe. You know, Joel South and Wendell Berry, well, they um, Mother Joan, Mother Joan. Yeah, did you see that? It was a stab at Joel South, and I, insane. I, the, these, these, um, I just have, you know, it's to a point now, especially with this COVID nonsense. 
it's to a point now where, uh, and I, I get, I don't want to open too much of a can of worms, but it is worth talking about is that the media in general have completely lost all credibility and they have been for the last number of years as they've gone deep and deep into this leftist activism stuff and they've just thrown everybody under the bus um but when i read that article of, on mother jones i was just like there is all of these organizations have been completely infiltrated with these lunatic social justice warriors that are right at a university and have been completely indoctrinated with Saul Alaninsky and all these crazy radicals and they're everywhere now. And it's like, I, th th that whole Salatin thing, man, it just, I mean, we could do a whole episode on it. I've actually been meaning to actually have Joel on my show to, to talk about it because yeah. I, Joel is a friend and I actually reached out to him when uh, this was starting to happen a few months ago, I was right pissed about it. Yeah. Uh, just because I saw this whole thing, this social justice stuff that, you know, guys like Jordan Peterson really called out a number of years ago and really brought to light, like, look at this, like, this yeah. is serious. It is completely infiltrated the, yeah. the um, yeah. market gardening space. Now, at the same time, does it matter for us really it doesn't because we're doing our thing and we're crushing it and same for joel like it doesn't really matter for joel joel is is the epitome of anti-fragile joel will <laughs> yeah, this. he will crush it i mean yeah. like i have absolute faith that joel um this this won't even matter to him at all he's a man of faith he's got good people around him and he's done so much good in the world that no amount of slander from these irrelevant social justice wars is going to do anything to him because the, the thing is with a lot of these people in, in the farming scene that like this guy chris or whatever he's irrelevant as a farmer in my opinion he's not he if you get famous from talking shit yeah and 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 taking a stab at somebody it's not gonna last it's no. not gonna last you're not you're not on the public uh you're not on the on the on the pedestal right now because of the great work you did you're on the pedestal right now because you tried to tear down another man well and, and because that, and because all these other victims and martyrs out there you know can can you know they can like you said misery loves company it's just that you're just the leader of the the miserable right now well and, and exactly and they, they all self-destruct because well, exactly. none of them are going to last in the farming because and i i saw this the first time I saw this, I was at a conference in San Diego and, and I, there was a woman there. I'm not going to name her name, but she, I was in, I was in the hot tub hanging out after the conference with a bunch of the speakers. And this woman starts talking trash about the conference and how it's like a bunch of white men, blah, blah, blah. And I was, I just called her out. I was like, but you're here. Like you've been invited to speak. I know you're getting paid the same as I am. Yeah. But flown down here, you got a beautiful hotel. We're in a fucking hot tub having a nice time and you're talking shit. It's like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. And, it, and, and, and then what have we heard about from this, this individual? Nothing. It's yeah. because these people who, who just focus their energy on tearing others down don't last. No. And eventually, um, and this is why I have, I have warned some friends of mine who have pandered a little bit to the social justice movement because they think it's going to get them likes and shares and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I've always said to them, you are inviting a wolf into the hen house 
and eventually they will come for you and they do they come yeah. for everybody everybody especially if you're a white male especially if you're a white male well, but, but even that is like there's there's always going to be somebody who who has a better sob story and so at that point it was like it's only a matter of you know months before chris newman it comes out that you know like i love like you know justin trudeau is like a classic example of this is like you know panders and panders and turns out you know he's, he's got black face black face like oh, partying yeah. in black face all these years it's yeah, like, under the bus yeah, i loved it it's, it's like, like nobody's nobody's perfect and and but yeah as soon as you give them an inch like you said it's like you're done and so i've a friend of mine we were talking about this the other day and he seemed to think that joel apologized and i was like no i i, I haven't seen the the letter or anything like that but i hope that joel didn't didn't well, bow- kind of i don't know i think uh he's got a lot of pressure on him you know um i told him not to apologize i was like dude do not even give them an inch because it won't do anything for you no um he kind of apologized for i mean what he did say was off color like i'll give him that like i wouldn't have said what he said he did he did say in his uh but you know what who cares joel is 60 something years old and he's not up to date with the newest political correct um ideology and linguistics what's what's who the, gives a shit in, you know in, the, 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 the thing i wish a lot of these social justice warriors would would realize is or i wish they would just follow a bit of their own dictums in that we live in a diverse world folks it's diversity they they, they like to pander it's, to diversity this diversity all the time it's like well except the fact that what's that it's the wrong kind of diversity <laughs> well exactly it's except the fact that there are older guys like Joel out there who don't say all the hip things that you've been saying at university for the last 10 years and who effing cares? Like, yeah, Joel made a slightly off color remark. Does that disregard all the incredible work? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I know a lot of people in this space. I've, I've been around for a while and I've got to rub shoulders with a lot of the, the, the greats in this space and um, in regenerative ag, just in gen- the whole thing. Um, and I don't know a lot of people who have contributed more value to regenerative agriculture than Joel Salatin. Yeah, no, there's none. The guy, the guy is a force to be reckoned with. I can't say enough good things about him. Uh, he, he, he's a family man. Look at, you know, one, one thing I've realized as, as, a, as a guy who has kids now and has a family is it's one thing when you see a man uh, or a woman who's been successful in their career and they, they put on this 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 they project out this image and whatever they give you this great uh uh interpretation of of their life and what they do uh and that's all good but when you see a man in how he operates in his family and a man who has his children at his side and uh you know has built a lot of close personal relationships that is worth a lot and and salatin is that like you know guys like uh you know i don't mind talking about some super famous people but guys like dave Suzuki, you know he's revered in the environmental scene yeah. uh guy's a total asshole I, and I his kid, and his kids hate him yeah his kids hate him exactly. uh, i had a friend who i had a friend who dated uh his daughter uh, one of his daughters in high school and they hated him mm. he's a total asshole he abandoned his kids uh, I, I think to this day, he still doesn't even have, he hasn't even uh, built the relationship back with his kids. So it's like, I, I look at a man in many different ways. 
and uh and salton is the guy the guy's as good as gold and he's a good man and he's done good things for people and that's what he wants and when you meet him i mean, I mean the first time i met joel was like that was like 10 years ago i was i was it was my after my first year of farming i was invited to speak at a conference in vancouver about spin farming urban farming and i met joel and and he actually wrote about me in his book, Fields of Farmers. He didn't, oh, really? he didn't remember my name then, but he wrote about <laughs> meeting me. And I was like, Joel, you got to put my name back in there. I don't give a shit now. But, but uh, I met him and he was so nice to me. And here, and here I am, this new guy. Nobody knows who I am. Yeah. And here's this famous guy. He's the keynote speaker there. You know, Joel, it's Joel Salatin, the event and the dinner, private dinner. He does a lot of those things. And he was so nice to me and he listened to everything I said and he was fascinated and he, he had questions for me. And, and I compare that to when I met David Suzuki uh, around, you know, around the same time, I was still sort of a liberal uh, lefty guy a bit at that time. And I met David Suzuki and I was invited to um, chauffeur him around actually, which I never did, but I was invited by the organizers of this event to do that because they wanted me to meet Suzuki. Yeah. But I, anyways, I got, I had, I had a little bit of one-on-one -on -one time with him and he was such a prick. It was, <laughs> it was unbelievable. I, I was completely fab, flabbergasted on what a prick he was. Like he was a complete apathetic asshole, wouldn't shake my hand, would barely look at me in the eye, didn't listen to a word I said, didn't care about anything I said. I was just like, man, that so two two dichotomies of people who have had equally measurable success and as far as the world is concerned with success yeah. public figures um whereas salatin's a guy who's actually done shit that has actually changed the lives of farmers and families and the land and suzuki he's just a guy who's talked about it and all he does is talk shit yeah. and he doesn't actually talk, have a lot of good things to say and so it's just, it's, it's interesting when you start to kind of weigh people out and I don't know. Well, it is. And, and, but it also means it gets to the point. It's like, what's the end game here is like, is, is it just to talk about, you know, all the bad things or is it, is it to, to cope with some kind of a solution? And, and like, so like with, with that, that Newman stuff, like the, um, I actually, before that whole salads and stuff happened, um, a friend of mine sent me this, like this, um, <laughs> it was like a three-part series about uh, white privilege and, and, and particularly white male privilege. So it was um, like, it was like a podcast with um, the Robbins lady about uh, white fragility. And then this, this, it was a podcast with Chris Newman. And like, like I was a guy, like, I don't know enough about this stuff. I listened to all of them. And I could not believe the stuff that these people were saying, that they were advocating, how they were saying it. Chris Newman was advocating violence. He, he, was, he, was, he, was, he was like, he was talking shit about Martin Luther King and pro-Malcolm X. Which, if you, if you go back in the civil rights movement, it's like Malcolm X was, was like an extreme Islamist who was talking about like, <laughs> like murdering people. Yeah. And, but it, it was very subtle, like the way he was talking, but like, you could just see it was like, it, it wasn't, it wasn't hope and, and love that was driving e either of those people. It was, it was bitterness and, and, um, and the desire for revenge. Yeah. The That's desire to burn it, it all down. It wasn't, it wasn't like just, it wasn't justice. It's revenge. That's yes. what they want. And if, and yep. if you, if you give these people that like, like, and this is important is like, 
there is shit wrong in the world. There sure. is injustice in the world. Absolutely. And, 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 and a lot of them has to do with, with these, these minorities. Absolutely. But it's like, what's the way to, what's the best way to address that? And, yeah. and it's, it's not to, to um, like Douglas Murray is just like, I love his stuff. It's like, yeah, he's hilarious. These, these groups, they don't want to be equal. They want to be better. Yeah. And um, like, it's just, we're, that's not a good place. And we've seen where that's gone with, with the whole, you know, Antifa black lives matter stuff in the, in the States and the oh yeah murders and the right. That's, that's where pandering to that, that belief goes. And, and that comes back to everything we talked about at the, the start of the, the podcast here, about, about mindset and, uh, and it, it's a big deal. We don't, we don't have to theorize about where this ideology leads anymore. And um so yeah, it's it's so important. Um, okay, well, <laughs> we're coming on. A bit of a tangent again. That was, was good. It's good. So that let's let's finish up the the last thing here for the five myths of permaculture, and uh, and we'll call it a night. But the um, so the last one is uh, no pests with beneficial insects and plants. Oh yes, that 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 I would say that is the ultimate one that I would say a lot of people in permaculture still buy into that. I think, I think the ones we kind of went through are not really that controversial. Like they're not that big of a surprise uh, with context, of course, but this one with the pests and beneficial insects, like I can't tell you how many times I've been teaching workshops and whatever I've taught all around uh, in many countries and whatever. And somebody's always like, Oh, well, you know, just put marigolds on the end of your beds for to avoid aphids or or um you can you can you can bring in ladybugs to do all this and and there it's like anything there's elements of truth to those things yeah. but when it comes to farm scale even even large homestead garden scale none of that shit really makes any sense like uh you know even the smallest market farms farming on 30 inch beds doing doing what i've been doing they still have to use proper uh insect protection usually that's a proactive insect protection like row covers right like that's the most common one um and you know even so so one, one great example of what should be a, and this one actually could speak to quite a bit, what should be an ultimate permaculture haven is the farm that Jean-Martin Fortier created um, that was funded by a billionaire. And he basically had unlimited funds to create the ultimate permaculture farm. He had Elliot Coleman there. He had Elaine Ingham there. He's got an entire lab or did have an entire lab dedicated to compost tea that Elaine Ingham, I think they spent quarter million dollars or something like that building this thing um they and 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 what i will say is they don't use it anymore because it's pointless so that's (laughs) that's my those are my thoughts on compost tea Uh, perfect but um jm put these incredible windrows in between all the blocks so it's a beautiful farm it's my favorite farm to go to i love it jm's one of my best buddies um and uh of all the places you think that a lot of these ideas in permaculture would work, it should be there. He had some of the best permaculture consultants in Canada consulting on this project. And so these windrows are amazing because they are, or hedgerows, not windrows, hedgerows. Hedgerows are about 10 feet wide and they're full of 
beautiful perennial uh, woody flowers, all these beneficial insect um, havens and there's birdhouses everywhere. Yet they're on year six of this farm yet they still cover all of their uh, sensitive crops with row covers every time. Oh. Why? Well, because in little mini monocultures, the beneficial insects, and this is my theory, I can't prove this, but what I can say is that they still use this stuff because they're not getting enough benefit from the hedgerows. Um, and so my theory is that if you had a garden that was super, super multifaceted and there was like very little, like tiny monocultures, not even 30 inch bed monocultures, maybe there'd be enough uh, beneficial insects to balance out the equilibrium and you wouldn't have pest problems. But even within a small market farm like that, well, it's not that small. It's, I think their production as far as 30 inch bed production is three and a half acres or four acres. It's, it's quite large but it's still small as far as farms are concerned, right? It's still tiny, but they still cannot get rid of the row covers because. So I, I wonder, and like this, just to, to, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure about this either. Cause the, this is, this is one of the things that I'm still kind of testing myself, but, um, like on, on our farm, one of the things we have a lot of trouble with is uh, cabbage moths. Yes. And, and so the, um, like you know i've heard a lot of people's like well it's, it's problems with your soil and it's like you know the, the reasons that that pests are attacking your plants is because your plants are sick and the pests are coming in to eat your plants because they're the garbage collectors that's the theory that's put out by you know guys like you know laying uh or lending them and all these other folks and stuff and i i have seen some good anecdotal evidence or heard of anecdotal evidence of where you know you know things do get into an equilibrium and they they kind of work out and so yeah. that gives me hope, but, but one of my theories, and I'd be curious to see of, of um, what kind of pests they're protecting from on, on Jean-Martin's farm, but um, like, eat, like my theory for our farm is the reason we have trouble with cabbage moths isn't because our soil is sick or that our plants are sick because we've done awesome stuff there. It's because we are surrounded by, you know, a Other million- ag. A, a million acres of of monoculture exactly and like there's like there's nothing that i can do in a quarter of an no. acre garden that's going to stop the cabbage moths from a quarter section across the road coming over and and because it's like there's there's so much imbalance so like i'd be curious if if that is something on general tennis farm it's like what is the cropland well uh, there's all kinds of monoculture around them it's it's not like your, your place I've been to both your guys' farms a number of times. It's not quite you're surrounded by all these big monoculture hutterite farms. Yeah. Um, it's not quite that way there. However, there is a lot of like Quebec actually is the biggest producer of GMO corn in Canada. And so not too far away, there is a lot of that stuff. And what you're touching on is actually a really, really important point because we can't like, and I, I always say this in my consulting practice, I said this for years to people is just pull the lens back to the next stop. Like, okay, it's one thing to like, you hunker down on your little micro farm in your homestead or whatever, pull the lens back to the block. Okay. What's going on in the city block or, or, or the, you know, call it a half a square kilometer, then pull the lens back to a 10 square kilometer area. What's around you. And that's really the things that you need to be looking at. So perhaps, you know, perhaps what, what, what I could have maybe 
touched on those things more in that article there, but um, you, you, you can, the, the point really is, is there's so many things you can do, but how much of it will actually have an effect if what you're surrounded with in the macro yeah. is out of your control. Exactly. Well, and, and so coming back to this cabbage moth things, like I've tried to grow cabbage well, and my mom has tried to grow cabbage for like 30 years. We have never grown a cabbage that wasn't riddled with, and like and I've tried to do the row cover. We've done wood ashes. We've done lime. We've done diatomaceous earth. We've done comp like everything, everything, anything that's been out there. Well, how you get rid of cabbage moths? We've done it. It doesn't work. We still get cabbage moths. And so two years ago, I was like, okay, I'm just going to try a bunch of different brassicas because maybe there's like some kind of a time thing that that'll work out. And so I started growing Brussels sprouts for the first time. I started growing kohlrabi for the first time. Both of those grow totally fine. The cabbage moths don't affect them. And so it's like, I just don't grow cabbage anymore. Yeah, <laughs> and I grow yeah. kohlrabi and Brussels sprouts and it works awesome because like kohlrabi is like there's they they pile on the leaves but the kohlrabi is is like a kind of a root or like a tuber yeah. and it's it's impervious to the cabbage moths and the brussels sprouts um the uh the the sprouts don't they don't start to develop until after like the peak season for the cabbage moths and and so it's just it's not an issue yeah and so yeah. Th th that can be another way to um you know to solve a problem in a in a in a different way and and not have to worry about it well, that's always that. That's my, my first line of defense has always been to follow the path of least resistance, exactly. and that's exactly that. I mean, for me, uh, one example on the farm was um, we just get massive aphid pressure in the summer, and there's really nothing I can do about it. And it has to do with the macro, not the micro, because you know you hear th this is another. Um, well, it's it's tied to this this criticism I had of pests. Um, which, which, which really came from a thing that Jeff Lawton became somewhat famous for saying is that, oh, you know, you don't have a so-and-so problem. You have a so-and-so deficiency. Yeah. So one thing he always talked to, he, he would say is, oh, you don't have a slug problem. You have a duck deficiency. And so uh, th there's this line of thinking that is um, that you're getting the problem because of some kind of deficiency that you have. And and, and there's a lot of truth to that, right? Because like, and it is true that you get certain, and I'm not an agronomist, but you, but but I've just learned this stuff through through experience and interacting with nature is that, you know, you do get certain problems onset earlier or whatever, if you have certain deficiencies, it might be a disease in the soil, it might be some nutrient deficiency, it might be some lack of mineral, it, whatever, but it could also be the fact that your neighbor's willow trees has aphids in it. Exactly. Totally. Well, and so, and so that, and that's, that's really most commonly for gardeners, especially urban gardeners. That's what it is. You're surrounded by a ton of stuff that you have no control over and there's only so much you can do and, and, and no amount of companion planting in your garden is going to make any difference. Exactly. And, and I, I, in, in our book, we have, we have um, one of the kind of myths about permaculture design that we talk about is, is that permaculture design is always about adding things. You know, it's like, well, if you've got slugs, well, you need to add ducks. Right. Versus like, yeah, but maybe you need to subtract mulch. Right. Like maybe it's a taking away thing as opposed to piling more shit on. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm not, like, there are some cases where you do need to add stuff, but for the, for the most part, from my own experience as well, 90% of the time, it's, and like, um, 
the, I can't remember if the guy said this, but it was, uh, you know, um, a design is perfect, not when there's nothing more to add, but when there's nothing left to take away. Yes. And it's like, like the simpler, the better, the path of least resistance, all those things. And um, yeah, and, and I think that's a, that's, a, that's a better way to look at the whole kind of pest, um, pest and disease problem is, is to figure out what you need to subtract. Yeah. Well, yeah. And you, you, you illustrated it with the cabbage. I did the same thing with kale on our farm because it just aphid pressure would just get so heavy in the summer that it was just not worth growing it anyways. And, and people didn't really want it in the summer anyway. So I was like, okay, you know, we pull out all the kale in July and I'd start another batch right away to plant in the fall, but just get it out because it's just becomes a problem. And then, and then, you know, it's like, why fight it? You know, just, just call it a loss and move forward. Totally. Well, Curtis, we just did two and a half hours. <laughs> that's, Holy shit. that's great. It's like a Joe Rogan podcast. I don't kid. This is good. Like I, I, um, the most of the ones I've done have been only like an hour and hour and a half. And I find like, like as, as, as like as hard as it is to talk, my, like my body is like sore <laughs> right now for just sitting, but the, um, like we, um, we need we need to get past these like five minute sound bites or the the thirty second sound bites. It's like it takes time to to develop these ideas out. That's what I I personally have loved about you know Joe Rogan's podcast and the other podcasts is it's something you can throw on, you know, listen while you're you know on a three hour drive and mm-hmm. you can listen to you know a couple of people talk through the new. One. I think it was you the other day. You were you had a shirt on. Was it, it said like um, uh, anti bullshit. Uh, pro nuance was that you no that wasn't me that, <laughs> that probably was rob i can't remember who had it but it was a perfect rob shirt it was it was like anti-bullshit pro nuance it's like that's, that's a great that's a great that's shirt ex- though exactly it is like it's pro pro nuance these are yeah. these are subtle issues and they're not easy they're not black and white um and like like just the principle of charity too is like everybody's not hitler so stop yeah. <laughs> stop saying that they're hitler there's very few hitlers in the world most of us are good people yeah and and you know innocent until proven guilty and 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 we'll we'll get through this but no we gotta cancel everybody as soon as they don't they don't fit in and oh well they 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 they, they tried to i'm sure they tried to cancel me i just i came out against that uh and I lost a lot of friends as early people that I got into the, the urban farming market gardening space. I've lost a lot of friends because of my stance and just not willing to take their shit. But I'm, you know what? I'm glad that I came out against this stuff um, years ago because yeah. now they can't cancel me because I haven't, I haven't pandered to them at all. It's like, cancel me. What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? I've had people try to do this to me in the past and it doesn't matter. And so that's why it's important, you know, and it's, it's a principle of permaculture is to diversify. And that's, that's what I have done. I've diversified how I make my living and I've diversified where I put my content. And now the, I, I make the vast majority of my living from my own website, not YouTube, not even book royalties. The thing that I have the most control of now that's how I make my living. That's like 80, 90% of how I make my living. Yeah. So, so, you know, and and I've done, I did that because I've seen this stuff coming for a long time and I knew it was going to get worse at some point. And it did this year. We've seen this all play out. And um, I hope more, I hope more people start to think about that too, because there's other ways that you can, 
diversify and uh, protect yourself for this changing world that we're going into. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of that, where can, where should people go to, to find out more about you? People can go to, I mean, I'm, I'm easy to find on YouTube, the urban farmer. Um, I, the vast majority of my content is now at fromthefield.tv. We're just about to pass a thousand videos at From the Field. Wow. And that's only been two years. So it's taken me, you know, six years or so to produce. Look out Netflix. Less, less videos on, uh, on, uh, on YouTube. Uh, and so fromthefield.tv is the main place. And uh, if people want to hear me get into more truth-based subjects. I have um, my podcast, libertyontheland.com, uh, but I also post those episodes on BitChute. Uh, I have a BitChute channel, so B-I-T-C-U-C-H-U-T-E.com. BitChute is like a sort of a free speech alternative to YouTube. It loads a little bit slower. It's not as slick, but I, but I like it. Actually, the, the majority of, of truth-based content I, I listen to uh, anything to do with news and politics, I just I listen to on 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 BitChute. I don't actually get any of it from YouTube anymore because it's so censored. And so I saw that coming a while ago because I was starting to get to a point where it's like, look, I don't care. I'm just going to say what I think is is right. I don't care what people think, and I'm glad I did it. It doesn't cost me anything. Um, maybe lost some bad people, but gained some really good people. And so I I, I actually eventually I, I've pulled all of these live streams. I do all my live streams on YouTube every week at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So people want to see. I do these long form uh, Q and A's where I answer members' questions. But then sometimes I just go down a rabbit hole on something. <laughs> but actually now I pull all that content off YouTube as soon as it's sat there and rendered, and it kind of looks like it's live for a few hours. I don't know why YouTube does that, but. I delete them off YouTube and then they live at from the field.tv. And sometimes I put part of them on BitChute. And yeah. so if people want to get more content from me that way, they can go to those places. Awesome. And I'll, I'll have all those links below in the, um, the description. Right on. Curtis, man. Thanks so much for, uh, for the great conversation. Thanks for what you do. And uh, let's, <laughs> I, I guess the let's, let's leave on a good note is like, are you, are you hopeful? Do you, I'm hopeful. Yeah, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for those that are awake. Yeah, I'm hopeful. I'm I'm hopeful for those that want to build the new regenerative world. Uh, the new regenerative world has nothing to do with the new world order. It has nothing to do with this elite central bank controlled stuff. I don't want to open a can of worms, but yeah. I'm hopeful for for people who are awake and believe in a decentralized regenerative future. Uh, because we will make that. Uh, we just have to step up and take responsibility and make it happen. So I am hopeful for that. Yeah, me too. And I, I look forward to building it right beside you, man. Yeah, man. Take care. All right, buddy.